Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. So we did Bob Dylan last week. We had the curveball. I lost my mind and swore a bunch. More <laughs> more than I remember swearing, like listening to that episode, I was like, oh man, this is a ton of F-bombs. I'm like Eddie Murphy and Raw in yeah, this episode. As producer Brian said, we earned the explicit tag on that one for the first <laughs> time in 36 from the vault history. Got a little too fired up with that. I don't know. I was drinking some coffee. Listening to Electric Bob and the Hawks it just got a little too too nuts. But now we're back to regularly scheduled programming. Back with the dead. Right. The dead, yeah, they didn't really have confrontational shows with the audience. Did they? I can't think of a dead show where they were like combative with the people around them. Even from the very beginning, they were like house band at the Kool-Aid test and just one with the audience. So it'd be interesting to hear a show other than Phil... And we're going to get it again today, lecturing the audience on their behavior. That's kind of the opposite, though. It's like, everybody, you know, chill out. Yeah, chill out, man. Like, the dead equivalent of Judas is Phil getting mad because people are standing on the seats. <laughs> exactly. In the theater. <laughs> or, you know, well, you do have Phil lecturing people, and then you also have Bob with the take a step back. You know, like Bob managing right. proper personal space management in the audience crowd control yeah and we'll get into this later in the episode it is interesting to compare and contrast their styles because bob doesn't come off like a cop when he does that you know <laughs> this right there's something like phil has that schoolmaster aspect to him where it, it feel like he's waking a finger at you whereas bob i don't know I, you feel like oh he just wants you to take a step back because he doesn't want people to get crushed right exactly and uh, Jerry's just kind of like, everybody have a good time. And and also, he's not an authority figure, right? That's his that's his whole thing, is he doesn't want to be an authority. So he would never not lecture the, the audience. There's a couple shows where he's kind of grumpy. And funny enough, the equivalent 
of yelling Judas at the Dead was like yelling St. Stephen or something. They didn't want to play because uh, that would always set them off. Though that's a little bit closer to like yelling Freebird at a concert, I guess. But when Jerry gets snarky, it's usually because people are yelling at him to play something that he doesn't want to play or that they don't play anymore. I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit with the whole Phil having to be the person in authority because you could make the case that he has to do that because Jerry won't do it. And sure. like I've been in situations with friends where I felt like I had to be the fill because things were getting a little out of control and someone had to say something or, you know, things could go off the rails. And there's like people in my friend group who are like the Jerry who know that there is a fill out there who will step in and stop things from going off the rails. And right. then they get to sit back and be the cool guy who doesn't have to take responsibility. So, you know, in a way, I feel sorry for Phil because in a way, I feel like Jerry's putting him in that position. And it's kind of, you could say it's kind of crappy sometimes. Yeah, it's true. Jerry, I think, had a little bit of a passive aggressive streak to him. The usual like, hey, I'm just going to like sit back and let everybody else worry about it thing where, you know, I'm just a cool guy that doesn't uh, get all uppity about this stuff. But instead, you're just kind of like pushing off responsibility to other people. And yeah, we had a great uh, banter on Twitter this week, post our Dylan episode about the uh, the fateful decision uh, to not let Bob Dylan into the band as like second rhythm guitarist in 1989. And while it has never been absolutely confirmed, I should say that Phil said no, uh, there Sources report that it was very likely Phil Lashley said no to that. Uh, so I had a fun conversation online with people talking about, you know, Phil probably made the right choice, but it was also Phil being as grumpy as possible as Phil does. So, and you know, everybody else in the band is kind of like, yeah, sure, let's give it a try. And Phil was like, no, this wasn't going to work. This isn't going to work. And he's, he was probably right. That would have been a disaster, most likely. It would have been interesting. A fascinating disaster, but uh, I think every band, as I replied, every band needs a dick. Not just a dick Latvala, but the guy who is like willing to be a jerk and put his foot down and say, no, this is a bad idea. I'm going to say that Phil was absolutely right to say no, and I also feel like everyone else knew Phil would say no, so then they could vote yes and not look exactly. like the dick. So it's like, you know, this isn't going to happen, because Phil will be there, he'll be the cop, he'll stop this. So I'll just say yes, so I look like I'm I'm a nice guy. So <laughs> exactly. that's kind of unfair to Phil. We gotta like stand up for Phil, I think. I'm talking myself into standing up for Phil with this because right. I, I do think he gets a raw deal with these sorts of things. I am bummed though that and this is we're gonna segue to to an announcement we're gonna make here, because you and I are gonna go see Dead and Co. at Wrigley, and it looks like we're going to both shows. That's right. Seventeenth and eighteenth September. In September. I'm bummed that Phil is not at Dead and Co. Um, I wish he was there. Nothing against O'Teal. O'Teal is great. I'll be excited to see him. I probably would rather hear O'Teal sing than Phil, but at the same time, you know, you want Phil there. I wonder if, like, Phil just assumed this wasn't going to work with Dedico. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, I'll, I'm going to be the cop again. I'll stand out. This thing with Mayor will crash and burn, and I'll look like the smart one again. And it totally backfired because Dedico is... Obviously, they're not the Grateful Dead, but like as a touring attraction, I mean, like they're as big as the Dead was at their peak at this point. Yeah, and by far the most successful post Jerry iteration 
I guess the dead played some big venues, but I don't know. Like, this is just going on now. This is like six years, I think. Yeah, and they're playing baseball stadiums. They're not playing, you know, football stadiums, but few bands can anymore. So they're about as big as a rock band can get. I mean, they could probably play Soldier Field, uh, right? I mean, if they played one show at Soldier Field, because they're doing two at Wrigley, how many seats is yeah. that? Uh, it's got to be 30,000, 40,000. Yeah. yeah. So if they, d- I mean, you know, they could do one show at Soldier Field and, and sell it out. I bet mm-hmm. it just Wrigley Field in comparison to Soldier Field is intimate. I guess you know. I mean, the, I mean, seeing a band at in a football stadium seems pretty awful. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I did see Fairly Well at Soldier Field, and it was it was amazing. But well, you know. that was a special. <laughs> but like you know, that was a special occasion. I, I, I right. You know, course. I feel like generally speaking, a football stadium would make you long for the relatively, you know cozy confines confines. of like 40,000 people at a baseball stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the the dynamic of Phil being the bad cop of the dead flipped after Jerry died, right? And I still haven't read the Fare Thee Well book, which gets into all the dirty laundry of the band squabbles after Jerry died. But from what I've heard, it kind of paints Phil in a very negative light, probably because he was the one band member that didn't cooperate with the book. It's one of those situations. Wasn't but there, I like, think a story with his wife too being kind of yeah, like, a like Yoko. His, yeah, and I'm not like, gonna get. I mean, I love Yoko Ono. I, I, I'm just saying the perception <laughs> of Yoko Ono. Yoko Ono, I think, is a great artist. There's a bunch of records of hers that I that I really love. But yeah, like I, I've heard that it, that Phil's wife has been blamed. Right, for and allegations that he doesn't pay the friends that he tours with enough in Phil and Friends and put the kibosh on some post-Cherry uh, Grateful Dead touring plans. And I don't know, on one hand, I would be twice as excited to see Dead and Company if Phil was there, just because Phil is my favorite surviving member of the dead, musically. And, you know, I think personality-wise, he's he's totally fine from what I've seen. But, you know, at the same time, he's over 80 years old now. He has... A second liver. <laughs> he doesn't want to tour. He's got a restaurant to run. He pretty much plays in California and New York, and that's it. And I don't really blame him for not wanting to grind grind it out on the road like the rest of the guys. My assumption, too, is that it's probably less stressful in Dead & Co. That, because Phil's not there. I don't know. I, I, I started the Fairly Well book. I haven't finished it. I thought it was kind of interesting. I'm, I'm, I, I find those post-Jerry years interesting and in how they had to figure out exactly how they were going to play this music without Jerry. Just figuring that out over over the years and before landing on on Dead and Co. Which again, I mean, has just been incredibly successful. And I, I have to say that like when I first heard that they were going to tour with John Mayer, I scoffed and I thought there's no way this is going to work. And here they are. You know, I don't think you can downplay the importance of Dead & Co. in terms of this renaissance of interest in the Grateful Dead in the last five, six years. I mean, Fairly sure. Well was a huge media event, but there's a whole generation of people who have only ever seen Dead & Co. They didn't get to see Jerry. And for what they do, I think they it's it's a they do a really good job. I'm excited for these shows. I mean, we haven't seen anything in a long time. We were talking before that you and I, we haven't hung out together in person for the entire run of this podcast because we started right before COVID. And last time we saw each other was New York, Madison Square Garden for those fish shows in at the end of 2019. So yeah. So this this will be, you know, not only a, an opportunity to see our, our buddies in the Grateful Dead, but 
to see each other. Oh yeah, <laughs> in the flesh for the first time in almost two years. Hugs. So, uh, uh, I mean, I would. Uh, yeah, hugs, tears. Hugs, it's tears. Be emotional oh yeah, all around. It's gonna be crazy. As I said on Twitter, if they open up with "Keep Your Day Job" played at ten beats per minute, I'm still gonna be. Oh uh, yeah. A, a crying mess. Bring just it to on. See Grateful Dead music surrounded by people uh once again so uh whereas i was skeptical of dead and company before i will i will take anything at this point so i'm ready to dig into this and we'll we'll have a lot more to talk about uh over the summer as we as we approach those shows we're hoping to see all of you too whoever out there is going to be at the wrigley field shows we're going to do something some sort of meetup we don't know exactly what it'll be yet we've got some time here we got about four months or so to figure it out Knowing us, we'll figure it out like the day before. Uh, but <laughs> so yeah, keep an eye on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> excited to have a 36 from the vault meetup in, in Chicago. I think that'll be a lot of fun. But before that, we got to talk about our show today. We're back in, in Dead World 1972. Can't wait to get into Dick's Picks 23. This is 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris. I'm Steve. And I'm Rob. And we are talking about Dick's Picks 23 today. This is uh, September 17th, 1972 in Baltimore, Maryland at the Baltimore Civic Center. We're back in September 1972. It's a little bit of deja vu since we were there, what, 12 volumes ago? Yeah. Last season? Last tour? Dick's Picks 11. Yeah, which is just 10 days after this one. So I think this is the first time we've hit two shows in such close proximity in the series. Yeah. Lots to say about that. For better and for worse, I'd I'd have to Mm -hmm. say. Incredible month for the dead. You can't really go wrong with September 72, obviously. You know, not only Dick's Picks 11 and 23, but then Dick's Picks 36, the last one. The last waltz is also in September of 72. So it's a great month, but maybe on the downside, we're, we're suffering a little bit in terms of variety. Sure. So that might be an issue. We'll see as we move forward in this episode. It's always nice, too, to come back to the dead after we've done a curveball. You know, we, we were a little more refreshed, I think. Exactly. This show has a much different vibe from uh, Bob Dylan in Manchester, as we said. Not so confrontational. A band at their peak. Pretty relaxed. September 72, one of the great months in dead history. So we talk about this a lot. This is, it's not September right now, but it's May, which is another one of the great months to listen to the dead. And man, this is a great Dick's Picks to listen to as the weather turned here in the upper Midwest. And uh, yes, got the grill out, drink some beers on the porch. It's it's great. Perfect music for that. Lots of Chugal. Big Chugal era for the dead. And also, you know, even before Dylan, we had an 85 show in Dick's Picks 21. Mm-hmm. And then in 20, Dick's Picks 22, it was 1968. So two somewhat unusual Extremes. years for the dead. Yeah, yeah, very extreme. Very hot. Very cold. Now we're back in the 70s with the nice, warm, creamy porridge. 
that we all know and love. The perfect setting on your shower. Absolutely. <laughs> so before we get into the show, we have our mailbag segment. Thank you all for writing into us. We get tons of letters, more than we can read on our show. So if we don't get to your letter, maybe we will in a future episode. Otherwise, I read all the emails, so thank you for writing in. People, again, have been very nice. We haven't gotten a lot of hate mail. Not a lot of hate mail. Maybe they've just all sort of taken off. It's all love, all positivity, so thank you for that. But also, if you do have a complaint, feel free to write in. like to hear those, too. Do you want to read our first? Yeah, sure. I'll take it. All right. This one comes from Brian. Uh, it doesn't say where Brian's from. Uh, Brian says, Dear Rob and Mitch... I forgot that we have have dubbed you Mitch for the I like for it. the future. We 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 like in jokes here, so yeah, let's keep the Mitch joke running. Right, good callback, good callback. Uh, thanks so much for such an entertaining show. The hours of joy you have brought me, especially when I have been stuck at home, are very much appreciated. Uh. I often find myself laughing on the way to work listening to the show. The idea of horses tripping balls had me nearly in tears. So that was from our Dixpix 21 show, uh, people dosing ho- police horses outside. Um, a quick question. Last episode, you read an email from someone who had a son that his wife wanted to name Franklin. You guys touched upon it, but I'm curious. What do your wives and children think about the dead? Uh, big dad rock conversation coming up. Here. Yes. Uh, my, my wife has no re- real interest, Brian continues. I caught my daughter humming Samson and Delilah. She must have learned it through osmosis. A very proud moment. When younger, she also wrote a whole Magic Treehouse book where she traveled back in time to see Dylan go electric at Newport. Whoa. Jeez Louise. <laughs> That's great. By the way, she hates Tennessee Jed. She's a dog lover and cannot abide the kick to my dog line. Oh. So, <laughs> not the reason we are cold on Tennessee Jed, but an equally valid reason. Thanks again. Best from Brian. Uh, so uh, what's your family's take on the dead there, Steve? So my wife is not into the dead or jam bands. I would bet that she likes the dead more than fish. Actually, I'm pretty positive about that. I think there's a couple <laughs> songs here and there that she likes. But any type of jamming, type one, type two whatever, not into that. I have two kids. My son always notices the song Direwolf. If I happen to be listening to a Dick's Picks in the van or some other bootleg or whatever. And the line he always notes is the please don't murder me part. I think the murder part <laughs> of Direwolf makes Appeals, it stand out to yeah. him. Yeah. Appeals to a little boy brain. Yeah. Exactly. How about you? Yeah. So the joke with my wife is if she's ever having trouble sleeping, she'll put on the Grateful Dead and watch a baseball game and be out in like 10 seconds. So uh, not a dead fan, has been to fish shows with me, went to Big Cypress with me, which is true love. That is insane. Does not care for fish at all. And every time she goes, she says, this is the last time I'm ever going to see fish with you. That's like a nine hour (laughs) show or something. I mean, that's insane. I mean, that was just one day of it too. And we had to drive 24 hours and sit in traffic for 12 hours. Oh my God. That was before we were married. And that's probably when I realized that uh, I had found my, and, my forever soulmate. <laughs> and she's a doctor. My God. Yeah. yeah. This woman is a saint. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's very true. Uh, the kids, you know, you talked about how Dead & Company has kept the dead alive for younger generations. I think one of the greatest decisions they ever made to appeal to even younger generations is to go heavy on the skeletons and the cute little bears because my kids are totally into the 
I guess, iconography of the dead. They both love skeletons. So they have multiple Grateful Dead shirts because they like the band that does the skeletons. So my older son, we would watch the Touch of Grey video all the time because he thought it was so cool (laughs) that the band is skeletons and turns into people at the end. My three-year-old now likes to sing Roll Away the Dude as he puts it, uh, in the car. So both of them are deadheads in training, but uh, it's early days still. They haven't haven't quite got the bug. You know, there's something like Brothers Grimm about the Grateful Dead because there's a, there's a macabre edge to their child appeal. You know, you're talking about your kids being into skeletons, my kid being into murder from, from Dire Wolf. Uh, yeah. there, there's something going on here where, yeah, the dead, they're appealing to, like it's like fairy tales or something. Uh, this is a very half-baked think piece premise that I'm working on here in real time. The Grateful Dead is Brothers Grimm, but I don't know, maybe we'll revisit it in a future episode. Yeah. Let's go on to our next question. This one comes from Mike in Chicago, Rob's backyard here. Hi, Stephen Rob. What a long, great trip it's been. I'm not much of a podcaster, but man, have I blown through your show after several months of listening and I finally caught up with episode 22. You've done an excellent job, and I will say the vault has really helped me get through some of these strange, unpredictable times. So thank you. On to my question. As the official metal detector for Chicago's Chirp Radio, I don't know what he's talking about here. Do you know what Chirp Radio yeah, no, is? Yeah, no, Chirp Radio is, I am a Chirp Radio listener. It's sort of our local freeform radio station. It was online for a long time, and now it has a spot on the dial. So yeah, cool. Okay. A chirp DJ. Oh, very cool. In. And, and Mike apparently is their metal guy over there. He says, I think a lot about metal and its presence in the world of music. I know the dead care very little, if any, metal influence, but in your opinion, when or where do you think the band musically were the most metal and who, if any of them, was, is the resident Grateful Dead metalhead? Keep up the great work, guys, and thank you again for the kick-ass show, Mike. So he's asking, is there any metal influence at all in the dead or is there if we were going to speculate or or i guess draw parallels between the dead and metal where would they they lie this is kind of an interesting question because i I suspect that there's like metal heads in our audience people who like the dead but maybe also like metal at the same time because they like guitar solos and exactly displays (laughs) of instrumental virtuosity prowess yeah uh, i have an answer for this i'm curious though like what do you think do you see any like metal like aspects in the dead well i think yeah i think we have the same answer here which is uh as far as who the most metal member of the dead is and maybe this is uh you know uh, paradoxical to our earlier conversation but i think it's definitely phil right? yeah oh yeah i mean the whole the whole Phil Bombs idea is basically, you know, Phil getting extremely loud and extremely distorted with his bass and blowing out speakers in a very heavy metal fashion. So when I think of heavy metal dead, I think of like like a really loud intro to Morning Dew or uh, a song we're going to talk about a lot today. The other one, those Phil rolls coming in or like the bass solos, which he may or may not leave on a Dix Picks. Yeah, I think Phil is the one with the most sort of aggressive tone through the longest period of the dead's history though you know jerry has his moments when his tone was very distorted unlike the live dead uh dark star for instance when he's he's really shredding in a sort of metal fashion there so but i think it's stuff like phil yeah i mean like you know that 68 dead show that we listened to you know we we talked about cream in that episode and cream is considered one of the pre-metal bands that informed like early metal like if you're talking about like cream Jimi hendrix early led zeppelin that helped set the stage 
for what metal became in the 70s and beyond. And the dead were in that zone somewhat at that time in terms of just shredding and playing hard and aggressive. I also think about sea stones, you know, moments of that. (laughs) I guess that'd be more like avant-garde metal, but, you know, just really noisy and abrasive type music. I think there's some metal in there as well. So, but yeah, Phil... A lot of Phil content in this episode already. I, yeah. I feel like we don't talk enough about Phil, so I'm glad that we're talking more about him now. Or, or we make jokes about Phil, but I, I think we're on the same page with him where we like Phil a lot. Like, I love Phil. Yeah. And I appreciate his grumpiness. And again, I feel like sometimes he was forced to be a cop because someone had to be the cop in the dead, and he was the only one willing to, to, to step up and, and do that. Real quick before we move on from Metal Dead, have you ever heard a Nazareth's version of Morning Dew? <laughs> no, I haven't. So this is something that we'll drop into the episode and that you definitely need to check out. Oh because, my God. Uh, you could not find a more different reading of the song <laughs> between Nazareth's Morning Dew and the Dead's Morning Dew. One might argue that Nazareth's is like sort of truer to the source material, given that it is, you know, sort of like a song about post-nuclear apocalypse, but it is very jarring (laughs) to hear their take on it uh, compared to Jerry Garcia's sensitive, emotional reading of the material. Walk me out in the morning, Jew, today Can walk you out in no morning, dear Can walk you out in no morning, Jew, at all Like, were there any metal bands on Dedicated? You know, that, like, famous oh. tribute album? I'm going to Google this quick. Yeah, I don't um, think so. I mean, like, Jane's Addiction is on there, but, like, they're... Yeah, but even that is kind of like a, a pretty light cover of Ripple. I'm not seeing any metal bands on this track list. We've got Cowboy Junkies, Indigo Girls, Dwight Yoakam. <laughs> Warren Zevon does Casey Jones. That'd be pretty cool, I bet. Midnight Oil doing Warfrat? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. We should look around for some other metal covers of Grateful Dead songs. Like, I feel like if you're into, like, sort of dream theater-ish prog metal, somebody's probably done a Slipknot or something like that. If Slipknot was a little bit, you know, heavier, that's probably the most metal dead song, I would think, right? It's got that kind of, like... Yeah, that musically, I was also thinking, like, Friend of the Devil. You know, you do, like, a Mm. metal version of Friend of the Devil. Like, not musically, but, like, lyrically. You know, you've got yeah. the devil in there. Like Judas Priest, yeah. friend of the devil. I could yeah. hear that. Let's move on to our next question. Do you want to read this one? Sure. So I, I feel like this one's way up your alley. <laughs> right. So the, this is a question about uh, our other favorite band. Hey, guys. Love the pod. Oh, this is from Sam in Vermont. Here's a hypothetical that I'd love to hear your take on and would surely troll plenty of your listeners along the way. Suppose the fish catalog was already out there while the dead were in their heyday. What fish song would you want to hear the dead cover in what year era? I could see late 70s Bobby hamming it up during the vocal outro and twist. Or what about 73, 74 dead jamming out a bathtub gin? P.S. 
Steve, I saw somewhere that you're a fellow UWEC alum Ooh. in 2003. Lots of good times back then. Oh, Shout man. To you, Wisconsin Eau Claire, right? Yeah. Wow. Sam, right on. I graduated in 2000, so you would have been a freshman when I was a senior. Like, I would have been a big shot on campus. And you would have been a young up-and-comer. So <laughs> I don't know if our paths crossed at all in the student union or over there at Towers North. But, you know, thank you for the shout out to UW Eau Claire. So this is like a great question for like 20% of our listeners. <laughs> and 80% sure. are, you know, already like Hitting fast Hitting the fast forward button, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know what, how you feel. I mean, I would say like a good 72 dead version of Runaway Jim, I think could really work. Just because that song has a little bit of a cowboy groove to it. And it would also afford Jerry some space in the back half or in the middle to, you know, rip some sick solos. So that's the song that came to mind for me. How about you? Yeah, I mean, this is a tough one. So those Phil and Friends shows in 99 with Trey and Paige, they played a couple Fish songs. They played Wolfman's Brother and Down With Disease. And I think Phil has played Wolfman's Brother even without members of Fish, if I'm not mistaken. Not really to my taste, though. (laughs) I didn't really like it. Maybe it has something to do with 99 Phil instead of like 70s Phil. But I don't know. Their styles are just so different that... I can't really think of a of, of a pairing that would really work unless you kind of cheated and went for some of the Fish songs, more recent material that like were very clearly influenced by Trey playing with Fairly Well, like No Man in No Man's Land or uh, Blaze On, which are like very clearly sort of dead homages. Like Blaze On in 70s Dead would work really well, I think, uh, just as kind of like a chugly uh, song for the for the band to lead into. I think that'd be a good like 80s Dead song. I could see that being that's a good. Too. I mean, I just think a lot of their like Fish has a lot of those goofy bluegrass songs that when they sure. do it feels tongue in cheek, but like the Dead could do it in a more straightforward way. If we're talking like you know Harper College, nineteen seventy, right. like if they're doing like Water Playing in the Sky, like Water in the Sky, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking. So I think that could work too. You know, like where it's like, oh yeah, this instead of doing it as kind of a goof, we have Jerry who's actually like an accomplished bluegrass player they could do it in a straighter kind of way that'd be interesting all right let's move on to the show enough fish talk back to the dead back to the dead so yeah dicks picks 23 this album came out in october of 2001 so almost 20 years ago right after 9 11 the nation is reeling so this album comes out and you can go back to september of 1972 yeah you need the comfort blanket of 72 dead yes and as we said we already had a dicks picks from this month so people who were following the series they would have known what to expect from september of 72 and you're really getting like a lot of the same songs on this record yeah apologies up front if you have listened to our dicks picks 11 episode recently because i guarantee you we're gonna repeat ourselves (laughs) either intentionally or unintentionally uh with some of our insights about this era of the dead because obviously 10 days apart these shows are are pretty similar and have pretty similar song selection i mean the one big change here is that in september 72 they had the two big jam vehicles were Dark Star and the other one. Tix Picks 11 has a half-hour Dark Star. This one has a 40-minute the other one. So an even longer stretched-out jam vehicle here. But yeah, I, I, went, I did the math, and 15 songs that are on Dix Picks 11 are on Dix Picks 23. So that's uh, about two-thirds of the record uh, is a repeat uh, from that show. And again, for better and for worse, because, hey, this is a great month. For the Grateful Dead, it's hard to complain about September 72, 
But for us going through this series, I don't know. I have to say that, I guess I'll say up front that I think Dick's Picks 11 is better than this album. And mm-hmm. maybe that's because I heard it first. Mm-hmm. So I'm comparing it to that. And I'm feeling a little, this is feeling like a little repetitive to me. That's like, all right, we've already been in this month. It's a great month. But like, why not go somewhere else uh, that we haven't been before? I don't know. That's a little bit of the tension of this Dick's Picks for me. That it's so right. great, but it's also, it doesn't have the thrill maybe that the first one did because it was fresher for right. me. Well, as we as we mentioned before, it's like it's it's fun that the Dick's Pick series does not go chronologically; that it jumps around. It keeps us sane because we get to fly between sixty-eight and eighty-five and seventy-two in in short periods of time, and it's almost like listening to a completely different band uh, on each of those volumes. But when you have two shows in close proximity like this, it would be more interesting to me to do like if we were doing like a full listen of September 72 and you could sort of trace incremental progress uh, along the way uh, versus doing one show and then circling back to another show from that month just 12 volumes later uh, but I'm going to disagree with you I think I like this one better than 11 Ooh. Why? Uh, so I think we're on opposite sides of that one and I'm guessing it's going to hinge on the jam vehicles yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the main difference is, again, the Dark Star and the other one. But I also think, you know, while a lot of the songs are the same, I think the set list here is top notch. So uh, we'll, we'll get into that. One thing about this set list is it's almost the entire show, except they cut off one more Saturday night at the <laughs> right. end. S- snubbed again. And have we heard a Saturday night yet? In Dick's Picks? I feel like... We it, have not, and I think we still have several volumes to go before we hear one. And I feel like it's been cut before. Or is this the first time it was, like, cut off? I feel like this is the... Uh, other than shows that are compilations of multiple shows, where I think they chose not to include it, I think this might be the first time it's been specifically cut out. I did do, like, the CD timing math and figured out that there was probably no way to fit it on there, just logistically, because that third disc is... I think it's pushing 78, 79 minutes. Okay. So unless you stuck it on disc two out of order, uh, which you could have done, because I think disc two is a little shorter. Yeah, it just would not have fit on a disc in the in, in the, the days of it being released in physical media. I mean, compared to some Grateful Dead closers, I'm a pretty big fan of One More Saturday Night. I mean, I don't think it's the greatest song in the world, but I think it's like a pretty good song. And there's definitely closers on other Dick's Picks that I wish they had cut out, that they preserved. So it's just funny that that song got the shaft and yeah. that we haven't heard it yet. But it sounds like for good reason, though. The, the, the CD technology of the time made it expendable. Didn't allow it. They could have put one of those little mini discs in the back that they used to do <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> with just one more Saturday night or like a seven inch special seven inch release. One more seven inch. They could have called it. It would have been, <laughs> it would have been adorable. Maybe that's just like a, did, did, did you listen to that one more Saturday night? Is it just like a sick one more Saturday night or is it pretty sick? You know, I forgot to. Didn't seem high on my list of research to uh, <laughs> check out what, how Bob handled Saturday night on this night. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a song that really changes from night to night, so it's expendable, but it's not like the, the berries change from night to night either. And the berries seem to always find a room on a dick's fix. So I don't know. We'll get there eventually. That'd be a good question for Bob Ware at some point. Like, did he feel personally hurt that they kept one more Saturday night off of the Dick's Picks and he wasn't collecting those royalties. You know, I just looked it up and uh, yeah. this show's on a Sunday night, not a Saturday night. Oh. So maybe that was, maybe it was like for accuracy purposes. Yeah, it was, 
<laughs> it was like, it was bad mojo to include Saturday night. Does Bob like change the lyric depending on the day? Like you know, like how people shout out the city sometimes. Like if you're <laughs> if they're doing trucking, they might throw in like Lafayette instead of some yeah. other city. Is he like or one more Lovin, Sunday night? One more Sunday. That doesn't really have the same ring to it. One more right. Sunday yeah, night. Uh, Syllable wise, yeah. No, that sounds like something Bob would do, but even he has his limits to hamminess. <laughs> He's so like, he has not, to my knowledge. Bob's like, there's too much ham on that sandwich, even for me. I can't wrap my <laughs> mouth around that. It's a little too much. So let's talk about, I guess, the context of this show. This is Fall 72. I mean, we talked about this in our Dick's Picks 11 episode, but it's just worth repeating. You know, this show, it was, I guess, about a month, month and a half before the release of Europe 72. That came out in November. They were obviously playing a lot of songs from that record on this tour. This is also the first post-Pigpen tour. His mm-hmm. last show was at the Hollywood Bowl in June. So those seem like the two most important things. We should also mention Garcia and Ace. Those solo records for Jerry and for Bob also came out around this time. So there were just a, a huge infusion of songs into the set list at this time. Right, yeah. And this is this month of September comes, of course, after the Veneta show, one of the more famous shows in Grateful Dead history. They toured a ton in the fall. Uh, Sam Cutler had them running around the country pretty much. The entire second half of the year after they got back from their European vacation, played a lot of multi-night theater runs, though this was just a one-off show in the middle there. Yeah, bounced around the entire country pretty much in the fall of 72 so probably why this month is so good because they were uh, very well practiced and you know all this huge influx of new songs had really been workshops throughout europe throughout the summer several examples here of songs that are just kind of in their sweet spot as far as being played professionally and with the right energy and with all, you know all the band members contributing equally because i think this is a really great sort of example of, you know, five-piece dead, just firing on all cylinders and intuitively talking to each other. Which brings up something that, you know, we talked a lot about that angle in the Dick's Picks 11 episode. But one thing I don't think we really touched on is that, and serious deadheads could possibly correct me on this, but I, it's sort of a theory that I was working on while listening to this, is that Fall 72 is when the dead really started to go deep on improvisation. And now, of course, there were big jams before 72. In the late 60s, you had very long dark stars, very long love lights, you know, all that stuff. Uh, very long morning dews, very long solos. But a lot of those jams were very structured. They could be extremely long and go off in different directions. But the Dix Picks 4 Dark Star, for instance, uh, from early 1970, we talked about like the, the while it's a brilliant half hour jam, the structure of it is, is, is pretty set because you can listen to the other Dark Stars from that run. They kind of follow the same path, even though it's each part individually is, is, is jammed upon. But I feel like in summer, fall 72, you really get the dead going, I guess type two is the fish language for this, but going off into like truly freeform improvisation within a handful of songs and really testing the limits of rock improvisation in a really exciting way. And of course, they would take this farther in 73 and 74 and then scale it back a little bit after the hiatus uh, through the rest of their career. But I think you're really in 
September 72 specifically in the Veneta show, starting to get these dark stars and other ones that move through several different melodic segments that don't seem pre-planned. Seem like composing on the fly, chord progressions, and musical passages to improvise upon. And I find that really thrilling, and I think this show is a really great example of that. What do you think of that? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because... We talked about this in our Dick's Picks 11 episode that I feel like you can hear the seeds of 73-74 when you listen to this month and also uh, Benita, of course, in August. What you're talking about, that more freeform style of, of jamming. I mean, on one hand, I think you're right, especially in terms of like the other one that we're going to hear. And there's also a bird song in Plan. here. And, and the play-in. Those are like the three big jam showcases uh, on this record. There's also like a lot of songs on this album. There's like 23 mm-hmm. songs. And right. again, they had a ton of material at this time. So it was all new and fresh. So it's also very songy. And this was before the time where they had the formalized, you know, space drum section in the second set where every night you'd have a free form section that would go on for a half hour and 40 minutes. And at this time they would really just sort of tuck that into one of these jam vehicles. Like you can hear in the other one, there's a little bit of a drum solo in there and there's like some spacey sections in there. That was also true of the dark star that we heard from Dick's picks 11. So yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but it is also interesting to compare it to like the late seventies and eighties, like when they, like set aside specific sections of the second set like where they would just go totally free and and crazy it was more structured then yeah yeah yeah. i think that's one of the great things about this month is that how it looks ahead to this Mm -hmm. era that certainly i love and i know you love and a lot of deadheads love that 73 74 era where it it got really jazzy and spacey and i think the plane in the band for instance that we're going to hear really made me think about 73, 74, yeah. that like Miles Davis fusion type vibe that you get mm-hmm. in that song. So they're, they're dipping their toe into that. And yeah. I, I, real quick, I, would, I found a great Bob Weir interview from this exact month, or it was published at least in September 72, uh, in the old rock magazine Crawdaddy. Uh, and you can find it, we'll drop a link when this show comes out in the Twitter, but uh, you can also find it on the Dead Sources blog, which is a great sort of archive of all of the Dead's media appearances uh, throughout the years. It's, uh, you know, related to the Dead Essays blog. But Ware has this really great description of Dead jamming in this period, which I think totally gets at the sort of magic that I'm talking about of this period. And it's a little long, but I want to read it. He says, We play cues to each other, and depending on whether or not anybody's listening or whether anybody cares to second the motion, we'll go that way. If you can get two on a trip, you generally go there. It can be something we all know or a completely new idea introduced within the context of what we're doing. If the movement gets adopted, then we can go to a completely new place. Or if somebody introduces a familiar line from an old place, it may be a song or a passage that we're more or less familiar with. We can go that way. Sometimes we know what we're doing. Sometimes we're completely lost in what we're doing, and maybe it just grabs us and takes us there too. It seems to fall into place a lot to me also. It's a tenuous art of trying to make format out of chaos, of course. As we get better practiced at it, we can get looser and freer in our associations and let the music more or less move us in a given direction. Sometimes, if what we're doing just really wants to go somewhere and the air is just pregnant with it, it's undeniable. We'll just go there. On a really good night, it'll happen a succession of times. No one will even play a cue, yet bang, we're just off. So I think that's a, it, it's a perfect description of like what the dead were starting to do here. It's a perfect description of what's going to happen in the other one in this volume. Uh, and I think it's it's cool to just hear that one of the band members describing this process, yeah. like putting it into words, because the dead are so often 
uh, portrayed is not very deliberate in what they do. Like they just kind of happen into these things. But I feel like this is this is a great quote that shows that they really knew what they were attempting to do here, and they were actually developing, you know, taking their improv, which was always a big part of their sound uh, from you know the late '60s, uh, and pushing it into new directions and sort of trying to get at this band telepathy that they had developed at this point, which is what is so magical about their improvisation yeah bob man breaking it down really well someone should get bob a podcast where he listens to old dicks picks <laughs> and, and analyzes them musically i i'd like to hear that yeah. i'd like to hear someone informed talking about dicks picks i think that would be great maybe after the dead and co tour bob can drop a line to osiris he can they can hook him up <laughs> with a with his own pod um he'll take over from one of us one of us will get fired and bob Ware will be here for season four it's not gonna be me man I'm st- I'm sticking in with Bob. I just I, that's why I was sucking up to him right now. I think I'm, right. I'm I'm I just said all these really nice things about Bob Weir. He's going to keep me on board. <laughs> the venue that they're playing at again is, is the Baltimore Civic Center. This was an arena built in 1962, so it was relatively new at the at the time that they played this show. Now known as the Royal Farms Arena, yeah, uh, which is convenience stores out there. I guess yeah, Royal so Farms. It's kind of a Rinky dink name. I was good. Uh, well, it's so fancy. It's like uh, you know, <laughs> princes and kings and queens hoeing <laughs> gardens, and maybe they're shooting acid into uh, horses' mouths and <laughs> tripping balls there farms. too. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's still there, and it has been sort of Baltimore's like main indoor music venue for for bigger bands for fifty years now. Because the Beatles played there in '64, Zeppelin played there in the '70s. Hendrix, Elvis, Van Halen, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, The Stones played there in 69 and then again in 2006. Springsteen has played there. So it sounds like they've often talked about replacing it in Baltimore with a newer arena, but just have never gotten around to it. So it's uh, an old war horse. It's also a minor league hockey arena. Of course. Con- yeah. Continuing the, uh, the theory that minor league hockey arenas are the best for jam bands. There's something about minor league Hockey teams and jam bands. Has anyone ever explored this in depth? I feel like this is like a <laughs> hidden connection in music that they just go together, like uh, yeah. peanut butter and jelly. Right, or, exactly. It's something about maybe the ice under the floor or something like that. Yeah, uh, something, man. Physiological effect. The Dead played there six times. They played first in 72, then again in 73, 77, 79, 80, and 82, and then not again after 82. No, and I think it's because they moved over to the Capitol Center and uh. played that dozens of times, which uh, was just 40 minutes down the road, kind of splitting the difference between Baltimore and D.C. and getting all the fans to, to that venue instead of downtown Baltimore. So, uh, yeah, this one had a, had a brief run. So, man, again, East Coast jam band fans just getting treated like, I don't know what. I mean, you just had so many opportunities to see the dead back then. <laughs> if you could you just hop in your car go from New York to Philadelphia to Baltimore to D.C. And then any number of venues in upstate New York. Man, embarrassment of riches for the deadheads <laughs> back then on the East Coast. No excuses. No excuses, man. you didn't see the man. dead in the 70s. No excuses. If you haven't seen the dead like 100 times and you were a deadhead in the 70s, <laughs> like, get out. Not enough. Right. What were you doing? Should have been seeing them 100 times in one year at that time.
set the scene here. What else was going on in pop culture? The week of September 17th, 1972. The number one song in America was Black and White by Three Dog Night. Three Dog Night, a huge band for a couple yeah. of years there. And they have no and legacy they've, they've now. They've come up before. Yeah. A weird band. Yeah. Since it was mostly covers. and Yeah. Well, they were like a they were like a vehicle for like cool singer songwriters at that time. Like Randy Newman mm-hmm. writes "Mama Told Me Not to Come," and then they do like a like a poppy cover of it. Right, and Harry Nelson. Right, and, yeah, which is kind of a cool thing back then. I, I like that idea of pop bands seeking out cool, obscure songwriters and then turning their songs into hits. Like like if Maroon Five was covering. Robert Pollard songs or something, uh, and, and, and <laughs> turning Game of Pricks into like a huge hit, or like Elliot Smith songs or something. That would have been pretty cool. I liked that back then. Other big hits from this time: Rock and Roll Part Two by Gary Glitter. Yeah, unfortunate man. I wish like there was a way to separate that song from Gary Glitter's very disgusting legacy, though. That was like a bull uh, song, wasn't it? Didn't they play that? It was, was yeah, and I think that's song. why I like it so much, because, yeah. like, it had, it was a good bulls, like, uh, chant, sort of, almost like a soccer chant, Yeah, you know, during timeouts at the old Chicago Stadium, so. Bulls had some good tunes. Yeah. You, you had the Alan Parsons Project song, too. Uh, what's that song right. called? Uh, Sirius. Sirius, like right. The, like the radio company. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Sirius, like, opening music, it's like the intro to Ida... Eye in the Sky. Pretty uh, badass. Very smooth. They did, uh, they'd always play Hit the Road Jack when people got thrown oh, out. Oh, man. So, My but, Kind of Town for at, at the end uh, for wins. And yeah, I, there's like a whole canon of 90s bowls music. Oh, man. I don't know if they touched on that in the documentary, but yeah, some rockin' jock jams. The, yeah. The Bulls DJ was the Michael Jordan of arena DJs. <laughs> it's he, true. he won some championships <laughs> himself for, for, for needle drops back then yeah. number one album in the country chicago five and which uh, was the same as uh dick's picks 11 so we're we're getting deja vu here too we should uh you know we had a i think we went deep on chicago in our dick's picks 11 episode we we gave some yeah. shout outs to uh chicago and how proggy they were early on and uh, right. like a pretty like awesome live band in the early going like just ripped it up yeah Big band. Uh, Shout out the Tanglewood set again that you oh, can yeah. find on YouTube, which is will change your opinion of Chicago forever if you only know him from the sort of Peter Cetera soft rock era. Yeah, Chicago Five. What, what was the hit on Chicago Five again? Is it Saturday in the Park? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> man, which doesn't fit our argument. I don't know Chicago albums that deep where I could just shout out the hit singles well, from. They don't help with the the number system, right? Right. Because <laughs> uh, how, how do you keep those straight? Uh, other big albums that came out around this time, Yes is Close to the Edge came out on September 13th, which is uh, maybe the best Yes album. Definitely in the conversation. That or Fragile. I like the Yes album the best. I'm Ooh, a, I'm an earlier stuff or is was a better uh, Yes fan. I thought you might like Close to the Edge because it's like two 20 minutes long. I d- I do like that about it. That's true. It's, that is definitely a Rob thing, but I, th- I like them when they're a little more uh, raggedy as they are on the on the Yes album. Don't they do like America on that the from West Side Story? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's on the album, but it's from that era. Uh, that is one of my favorite preposterous covers. Covering singer songwriters. Oh man! They just completely. It, it is similar to the Nazareth Morning Dew, and as far as like you listen to it and you're like, wow, this is certainly a take on that song Crazy. <laughs> that I did not expect anybody to have. And yeah. Black Sabbath Volume 4 came out right around this time, which only I can see this, but Steve wore his Black Sabbath Volume 4 t-shirt. Totally a coincidence. I know. I'm like <laughs> I'm like the nerd who wore the shirt to the band that he's seeing. <laughs> exactly. It was a total coincidence. But yeah, Black Sabbath Volume 4 came out September 25th. And as you could tell, 
from the shirt I'm wearing, it's my favorite Black Sabbath album. So yeah. uh, also, definitely the best cover, I think. Yeah. Although really although the I'm, Paranoid cover is pretty, it's so bad, it's awesome. All those early Black Sabbath covers are incredible. I like that like. cover for Never Say Die, where it's like two birds dressed up as pilots, I think. <laughs> I don't know if I know that one. Are they, are they like wearing like bat, like like motorcycle suits? Uh, I don't know. I have to look at the cover again. But it's two birds on cool. the cover. Yeah. Number one movie, as it was back at Dick's Picks Eleven, is Deliverance, of course, by right. John Borman, classic film starring Burt Reynolds and John Voight and Ned Beatty. I'm surprised Dueling Banjos was never like a dead tuning oh, song. That's like good... Roll Out the Barrels or, uh, you know, the, the, that kind of stuff. Like you could hear, definitely hear Jerry playing Dueling Banjos. Oh, yeah. There's got to be. I, I bet there's a, a tuning of him doing something like that. <laughs> there's got to be. Yeah, that's such a Jerry thing. Yeah. That would have been cool for them to jam on that. Also, two big Criterion classic movies came out this month. The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Louis Benwell, and you have Tarkovsky's Solaris came out this month. Have you seen any of those movies? I've seen Solaris, though I probably fell asleep three times <laughs> during it. <laughs> yeah, very slow movie. Pretty slow. Very interesting. Very yeah. slow. Um, I did, uh, speaking of Criterion Channel, watch a 72 movie from a little earlier in the year, I think, but I, I'm, I'm guessing this is a big Steve movie. I watched The Hot Rock for the first time. Oh, Yes. As part of their George Siegel collection, rest in peace, George Siegel. I had already movie. seen California Split, so I went to uh, the Hot Rock, and yeah, that was a fun one. It was just like I Redford. thought it was just a heist movie, but it was like uh, like five different heists in one movie. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, pretty pretty cool. You watch that movie, and you're like, oh yeah, they totally just ripped this off for Ocean's Eleven, like the George Clooney. Uh, oh yeah, exactly. Because it has Got that the exact same vibe. Yeah. Exactly, kind of a comic tone in a heist mm-hmm. movie. Super fun movie. Yeah, Redford and yeah, Redford, George Siegel. I didn't recognize the other people, but yeah, pretty good, good cast. Yeah, that made inspired the name of a Slater Kinney album, of yes. course, which is how I knew it first. But uh, totally, yeah. Uh, we need a Criterion Channel sponsorship. We could. Uh, oh man, we could totally do Criterion Channel Corner every episode. Cause, that'd, man, that'd be that'd that be awesome. Abundance of riches. We got to get uh, Sunshine Daydream in the Criterion Collection. Yeah. Get, <laughs> yeah. Get get them in there and then we can do the uh the liner notes essay for that you can watch uh monterey pop on there usually but i don't think i don't think the dead are in the monterey pop movie right they were at the festival no yeah i don't think they Crosby were played with them at the festival just like they're not in woodstock either right exactly they were not photogenic i guess <laughs> no that's a shame i'd love to see yeah film of that the number one tv show well let's count down the top five you have okay. at number five tied you have the nbc Su- uh, sunday night mystery movie tied with a show called bridget loves bernie which i'd never heard of this show before i actually looked it up yeah. quick it starred meredith baxter bernie who was the mom on family ties yeah. And this guy, David Burney, and I guess they got married because of the show. It was only on for one year, but it was a huge hit. Obviously, it's in the top five. And it was about like inter-religious marriage between a Catholic and a Jewish person. And that was hmm. really controversial back then. So I think maybe it got canceled because it was, it was too hot for TV in 1972. Probably the Pope put some pressure on them and said. And I think there was some Jewish groups, too. It was coming from that direction as well. Like, they didn't like mixing the different denominations back then. Yeah. That's pretty We've crazy. A long ways. Kind of a crazy thing, you know, like 50 years ago. That was a big deal. Yeah. And then, yeah, this is a Family Ties season of 36 from the Vault for some reason. Oh, yeah. And then the Meredith Baxter-Bernie. And That's true. She's no longer Meredith Baxter-Bernie, by the way. I looked this up. She's just back to Meredith Baxter. She, she went back she to She actually Baxter. is married to a lady now. Is she? So, yeah. I didn't so know she that. She uh, totally come around to the other team. So. so how about that for an arc from 72 to 2021 20, <laughs> where yeah. you have the show in 72 about mixing different religions and that's too hot for TV. 
Flash forward 49 years, the star of the show is married to a Yes. Beautiful. 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 Yeah. Social progress. Social progress right there. Um, number four, Maud, the B. Arthur. Yeah. Very funny lady. Love B. Arthur. Number three, Hawaii Five-0, which I've never seen, but it seems like a cool show, detective show in Hawaii. There's like a reboot of it, right? Yeah, Isn't I guess. The, yeah. Like a CBS show that is like modernized. That doesn't Hawaii seem very Bible. good. Yeah. I, I want to be in yeah. Hawaii in the 70s. That, that seems yeah, cooler. Exactly. Number two, Sanford and Son, which I didn't know the show was this that early. I thought it was mid-70s, but apparently hmm. huge hit. And number one, of course, All in the Family. Archie! Archie! Yeah. We're going to have to do like a... Uh... All in the family podcast when we're done with the dicks. I picks. think so. It'll just be all in the family episodes, and then like for five minutes we'll talk about the dead show that week. What's the What's the <laughs> wife's name? I was just doing the, the impression of the wife. Is it Gladys? Something like that. Um, I don't know. Sounds right. Archie. <laughs> Man, how many of our listeners give a shit about All in the Family? <laughs> Is it anyone? We should sing the All in the Family song at the start of this segment. Those were the days. Because yeah, they, they like perform that live before every episode, right? Is that that was the shtick? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like All in the Family is like technically before our time because you yeah. know we were born in the late seventies, but like I saw reruns of it, so I've seen a fair amount of All in the Family. But I feel so old knowing that I can make All in the Family references. That that seems right. so ancient uh, yeah. at this point. They need like a they need a reboot like Dead and Company. Yeah, they need man. Archie. <laughs> company to, well, to bring in the tiktok influencers well into, uh, yeah carol connor he was archie he, he's dead so he's the jerry yeah i don't know if the wife i'm guessing his wife is probably also passed by now you get like who's the john mayer equivalent like pete davidson <laughs> <laughs> this is the new archie bunker archie bunker jr but like you still have rob reiner on there that's he, you could have rob reiner do no it. no yeah. have have rob reiner be the same age but then just dress up pete davidson as archie bunker <laughs> he's like 50 years younger than Rob Reiner, but he's still the cranky old man on All in the Family. Right. I think that, yeah. So, yeah, maybe. And then Ariana Grande can be the wife. And, uh, <laughs> I think we got something going here. This is like our family ties spec script. Oh, man. The Zoomers. Throwing out free TV ideas. Zoomers are going to flock to this, man. It's like, oh, and Pete Davidson dropping like racial slurs, like Archie Bunker. Oh, man. It's going to be, it's gonna right. be beautiful. He knows all about them grave checkers. <laughs> exactly. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.
What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. We have finally reached the show portion of our episode. We're at the Baltimore Civic Center in Baltimore, Maryland. September 17th, 1972. Prime dead. Let's get into it. We're here in the first set. And where do we start? A little bit of Chuck Berry. Promised Land. Of course. Naturally. The best Berry there is in the dead canon. I don't think there's any question. Absolutely. This is the best era to hear Berry, I think. Because this is really the dead at their most, I think, rock and roll. And Chugal and, you know, that early 70s, just energy and piss and vigor. Vinegar. Piss and vinegar? That's it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's just really hard charging. And yeah, I mean, this is a great way to start the show. And I think this is a great version. Yeah. This is a funny set because it kind of touches on a lot of 36 from the vault favorites. <laughs> and starting right off with the Chuck Berry, which we haven't heard in a few volumes, actually. No, uh, no. We, we, got a, we got a little break from the berries, uh, thanks to, I mean, of course, the Dylan episode, but neither 85 or 68 had any any Chuck. I was just thinking about like the Dylan and the Hawk show, and like someone yells Judas, and then Bob goes into uh, Johnny Be Good after that. <laughs> like that would have been the needle drop. Oh, yeah? Play fucking loud. If that would have been it. <laughs> yeah. Kind of I, mean, funny I, mean, like, I guess it's kind of, yeah, kind of a similar thing where you know, they were looking, those folk fans were looking down on the music of Chuck Berry. Yeah. Uh, or like, or that's why they were booing. Bob and the Hawks going to keep your day job after that. After they yell <laughs> Judas and they go, play fucking loud. And then they go to keep your day job. That would have been pretty awesome. Um, that solo on the outro of this uh, Promised Land, is that Bob? Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but it could be. I don't think it's Jerry. It doesn't sound like Jerry, but maybe I'm wrong. But I was like, that sounds kind of like Bob at the end. I don't know. Hmm. We'll have to go back and listen to it. Yeah. Hard charging, promised land. I don't know if there's much more to say about it than that. I mean, it's just a good way to start the show. Yeah, I mean, there were there were only a couple of different openers they played in 72, I think. You either got promised land or you got Bertha, so... Oh. Uh, both equally solid openers to a show, I think. Oh, so. Now I'm bummed that we didn't get Bertha. Well, yeah, but no, no, no big complaints, and oh, it's no. only a single Barry show, so that's uh, true. And yeah, and again, yeah. You start with the Barry, and then you move on. You don't want to like end with the Barry, right? So from there, we go into Sugary, and I mean, this is a cool version, right? I mean, you were into this version, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, it's still it's early Sugary, so. You know, we've heard some of the sweet spot sugaries in the late 70s that are obviously very much more extended. Sugary is still fairly new. It's on Garcia. And, um, you know, is it on Europe 72 as well? I can't remember if a version made it on there. But it's kind of in keeping with those, that batch of songs, I guess, where it's got some nice solos in it but it's not really like a deep dive into improvisation like it will be later in the decade so this is you know this is a good early version 
again, like a, a nice tone setter for the show, right? Right away, you got the, the Bob-Jerry dynamic, once again. Yeah. We talked about this in 11, too, where it's kind of back and forth emotionally between the two of them. I just looked it up. Sugary is not on Europe's end, mm-hmm. I guess, because Jerry was keeping it for his own record at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been spoiled by 77 Sugarees, which is like, you know, like a 15-minute version of this song at that time and Jerry just doing these really long buttery guitar solos that are just amazing and you're not getting that at this point so you know this is great for what it is but if you've got the 77 sugary in the back of your mind it might be a little disappointing you're like oh I like that but you know what we don't need to do that we're in 72 we're having a good time we had some berry we had some sugary and then we go into black throated wind which Rob really likes this song because it's about St. Louis the city of blues Actually, you don't like this song, right? You don't like that line of the song. I don't. That line it just is is, is very hokey. Um, should be said before we get into Black Throated Wind, we go into another Thirty Six from the Vault favorite, which is Phil yelling at the audience. Oh, that's right. We talked about it earlier. This time he gives like his "If you don't push them, they won't push you" spiel. I guess people crowding the stage and right. security guards. Uh, feels like he's a little bit on the side of the security guards here, which is. A prime example of Copville, uh, but maybe surprising for the anti-authoritarian vibes of the Grateful Dead. And for the crowd management fans out there, you know, the people who like hearing crowd management on Dead albums, <laughs> it is an interesting contrast between the, if you don't push them, they won't push you, and Bob's take a step back, take another step back, take another step back, which became the iconic crowd management banter for the Grateful Dead. And again, it's in a way... On paper, it doesn't seem any friendlier than what Phil is saying, but there's something about the way Bob says it, the way he plays his crowd management, right. where it, it doesn't, it, it seems more likable when it's, he does it. It's kind it. of like different political approaches, like, you know, sort of the, like, behave and the police will not have any reason to arrest you uh, versus, you know, take matters in your own hands and look out for your fellow man and, well, and it almost keep the tur- people up front from getting squished. The way Bob does it, it almost sounds like crowd participation, like, yeah, like exactly. we're all in a group. Take a step back. <laughs> Take another step right. back. So, it, yeah, there's, I'm curious if there's any, uh, you know, analysis of crowd management styles in, in the dead, like, you know, like Lost Live Dead. like policy paper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> dead essays. Have they covered this? Like the crowd management <laughs> yeah. styles? Uh, because I do feel like the Bob style is maybe a little more effective than the Phil style. So anyway, back to win. Rob... My theory on this is that you don't like the St. Louis City of Blues line because you're from Chicago and you know right. that Chicago is the city of blues. <laughs> and you're very protective of Chicago's <laughs> reputation for being the city of blues. So then you hear Bob shout out St. Louis or St. Louis, right. St. Louis, city of blue. Right, right. And it, well, we know how much I love the blues. Exactly. Too. You have civic pride yeah. about the blues. <laughs> You like that Chicago blues. You have a Chicago deep style pizza, deep dish pizza, and you listen to some <laughs> right. Chicago blues. Eat some Italian beef. Yep, it's like yep. I'm you're Mr. Chicago. <laughs> it's true. But no, I I like Black Thunder Win a lot. This is a song that I feel like should be boring because there's not a whole lot going on in the song. It's a pretty, it's kind of flat throughout the entire song. Right. It's really up to Bob, and we've talked about this before. Like Bob's performance, he's got to ham sandwich it up in this song. And he's not mm-hmm. as hammy yet in 72 as, as he's going to get. But I, I always enjoy Blackthorn Wind. Every era, I loved this song, like 80s dead, 90s dead. Are you a Blackthorn Wind guy, other than the St. Louis yeah, City Blues? I was talking to my buddy Andrew about this particular version, because he, similar to what you said, he talks about how like Bob got progressively more hammy with this song as it went on through the years. Uh, but that this is kind of the, the sweet spot where he does some like 
a couple yes, a couple barks at the end, but it, it doesn't get too uh, too corny. So yeah, this is a really nice version, but just kind of like a mood piece, right? It doesn't really have, doesn't have a big peak until the end and it's just kind of dreamy and it's got some nice lyrics, you know, other than the City of Blues line. I kind of like the, the lyrics. Like, the But it's, this is a pretty early version, and Andrew also pointed out that Jerry either doesn't remember how to play it or thinks they're playing Jackstraw at the start because he's playing the Jackstraw chords, and then Phil kind of musically corrects him back <laughs> on track to play Black Throated Wind. So. Well, and they're definitely in the same vein, those two songs. Yeah. I mean, so mm-hmm. it's not like radically different you know, vibes or anything. I mean, I think Jackstraw right. is a better song lyrically, and it's more dynamic musically but yeah i don't know i i I was just thinking about the people who are gonna you know like oh you guys always make fun of tennessee jed for being boring Mm -hmm. why isn't black throated wind boring because you could say you could argue that tennessee jed is more dynamic than black throated wind Mm -hmm. i guess my argument would be that well for one thing we don't hear black throated wind every single (laughs) show in this uh you know dick's pick series and two i don't know what it is there's just something about i can't really justify that opinion i just i like what bob does on this song i think yeah, and even when he does ham it up later on, I like his hammy. This is a good scenery chewing showcase for for Bob Weir. Uh, so right. I always enjoy it. Let's move on to Friend of the Devil, and uh, this is the fast version of Friend of the yep. Devil. Still playing the fast version. Yeah, how do we feel about fast versus slow? Yeah, I feel like it's like a pretty lukewarm take, but I, yeah, I like the fast version better. <laughs> right. Uh, I I am coming to appreciate the slow version as we go through these because I'm older and slower myself and i kind of enjoy the space that it brings and i like those versions that give uh bob and brent solos and you know a little chance to to stretch out but i i'm still gonna prefer the fast version yeah and fall 72 is kind of the last era where they were playing it a lot in the fast version and then there's a couple versions in 74 and then after the hiatus it's it's all slow from there on out man how slow is this song gonna be with dead and co this is gonna be like (laughs) It's gonna be like listening to low, you know, like some slow core <laughs> band. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. I can't wait for it. Um, yeah, I like the fast version more too. It, this one in particular gave me like a Bakersfield country vibe. Like it fit with the cowboy song vibe of 
the Dead at this time. I mean, obviously they play cowboy songs throughout their career, but I feel like this is when the cowboy songs sound the best in 72. It just has a really great twang and swing to it that I really like a lot. It, it has a good rock edge to the country rock thing that they were doing. So yeah, right. I, I really like it a lot. There's a weird sort of nugget in that Bob Ware interview that I referenced earlier in Crawdaddy, where he says that they were thinking about playing a country western show in Missouri. Ooh. With George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Ooh. And the interviewer like asked them, like, are you only going to play like your country numbers? And Bob's like, oh, I don't know. We, we haven't really thought that far ahead. And clearly the, the show never happened. Um, but I do think Friend of the Devil would have been like a great crossover hit for the dead. Oh, man. Uh, if they decided to go into the country yeah. like, direction, it probably would have been an uneasy fit. It reminds me of like the birds playing the Grand Ole Opry and getting booed <laughs> when they were playing uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo stuff with Graham Parsons. But yeah, so probably they would not, even in 72, a few years later, the country fans would not have been into the long hairs of uh, well, I mean, Dead. But, but you had the outlaw country thing starting to come into play then. You know, like Willie... And Whalen were set up in Texas by then. I mean, it really blew up by like the mid 70s, but yeah, there right. might have been some. I think it would have been easier then than it was in 67. Maybe there's, there'd be some hostility. I mean, like, would the dead have backed up George and Tammy at all? I don't think so. I think it's just like it would have been on, they would have been on a bill. Okay. With them, that so. would have been cool. Would, I would have liked to yeah, hear I mean, it, it, like Jerry and George Jones sing together. That'd be pretty yeah. sweet. They could have wore their nudie suits. Oh, man. That would have been sick. Which they did, I think, for only one show around this time. Yeah, it's like a... Clearly now, I think there's a lot of Grateful Dead influence. Well, maybe not in, like, modern country music, but, like, your Sturgill Simpson type. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, yeah Americana not, scene. Not exactly alt-country. Yeah, Americana sort of stuff. Like, Friend of the Devil is probably, you know, like a standard in that community because it just suits that style so well but oh yeah yeah the grateful dead themselves i don't think ever really benefited from that crossover they just sort of influenced that realm of people did willie ever play with the dead proper because i think there was like some post jerry willie and grateful dead stuff maybe yeah i don't know did someone someone out there dig that up we'll we'll tweet about it after this show i'm sure sure it's out there Speaking of cowboy songs, we have El Paso next. And, uh, you know, like I said before, a lot of these cowboy songs that we roll our eyes at in different eras, this is probably the best period to hear the dead yeah. play this this material. Yeah, I mean, and it, this is another thing we brought up in Dick's Picks 11, that, like, Bob, even though he did have Ace come out and he had a lot of original songs, like, he didn't quite have enough to support the Bob Jerry alternating songs structure that they started doing around this time. So you're, you're getting a lot of covers, <laughs> a lot of country Bob covers. Uh, so we got El Paso here, we got Big River in a couple songs, and then Mexicali Blues, which is an original, but might as well be a, a Bob country cover, and me and my uncle later on. So, uh, yeah, a lot of... A lot of cowboy songs. It's not like sort of contained to the cowboy song part of the set yet where they would, you know, sometimes stick a couple of these songs together to let Bob get his his rodeo on, <laughs> get it out of his system. I'm surprised that Bob never did like a country album like in the 80s or something. You know, yeah. like a proper, like Bob and the Judds singing on a song yeah. or Bob and uh, Steve Earle doing something. I mean, I feel like he had that bug and it's never really left him. He's always had such a strong country influence on what he does yeah. and love of that kind of music. Instead, he went for the Bobby and the Midnight's uh, yeah. direction <laughs> and yeah. tried to be the MTV pop guy. I don't know, Bob, I'm surprised he hasn't made yet, and maybe he will soon, but like a Rick Rubin. Oh, yeah. You know, stark black and white cover 
country cover album. Well, he did that one album. record. His his last solo record was kind of like that. Yeah, where, but it was with the National guys, right? Right, but it was it was more on like the folky side. It's that's a good mm. record, by the way. I mean, he he would kill that. Like, I I would yeah. love to hear him do a record like like if he did like a like an American record, you know, like like the Johnny exactly, Cash thing. Yeah, I think yeah. he would he would kill that. I'd I'd love to hear that, Bob. You're listening before you take over as co-host of the show. <laughs> take our advice. Make that kind of record. I think you 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 would murder it. Can we get Bob to do a Soundgarden cover too? Oh man, <laughs> that'd be amazing. You should do "Burden in My Hand." Or something that'd right. be a cool song. Or do seasons, do seasons. That Chris Cornell <laughs> seasons. song, yeah, there the you single go. soundtrack. That's a, legit. That would be killer. He he would. That's a great song. All right, we're getting sidetracked here. Let's talk about <laughs> Bird Song next. Obviously, one of the highlights of this record, Bird Songs in '72, Fall of '72. You just, you can't beat it. I mean, this is about as good as the Grateful Dead gets, as far as I'm concerned. I wish that we could get a Bird Song in every record and not like Tennessee Jed. Yeah. You know, like if Birdsong was on every Dick's Picks, it'd be, I just would love to hear different airs of Dead play this song. I never get sick of this. consistently enough to appear in a, a wide selection of Dick's Picks, I guess. But Yeah, I mean, if, if you go on Heady version, look up the top bird songs. I think four out of the top five are from August and September of 1972. So this is clearly the peak of the song. Vanita's got to be number one, right? If, yeah, of course. I mean, that's... that's is it Vanita you know, or Vanetta? Vanita, Vanetta? We had, we had this argument uh, before, I remember. <laughs> Somebody corrected us, but... I've already, I've already forgotten. Otherwise. Yeah, it, it it can be both simultaneously. Okay. Yeah, but I mean that the just the the full band group improvisation on display in Birdsong is tremendous, and I think this is not as good as the Veneta version. I don't think it's as good as the Dick's Picks Eleven version either. But those are like some of the great jams and dead history almost. So it's that stiff competition, and this one is just like a tick below that. So yeah, definitely the highlight of the first set, I think. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree that it's not as good as the Dick's Picks Eleven version. I've already tipped my hand. I feel like Dick's Picks Eleven is better than this record. This is a really great record, but I feel like a lot of the versions here, almost in every case, are like slightly worse than Dick's Picks Eleven. And Dick's Picks Thirty Six too we're not talking about that for a while but that's a monster and i feel like mm-hmm. out of this out of these september dicks picks i think this one's the weakest they're all great but 11 and 36 i'd give the edge to maybe i'm showing my preference for dark star mm-hmm. because there's a great dark star on 36 but anyway we'll, we have more to talk about that later in this episode let's go to big river and this has been a song i keep talking about as being always surprised by how much i enjoy big river 
This one's like a little weaker than some of the big rivers that we've heard lately. Yeah. Jerry doesn't quite take off on it like he does on some of the other really hot big rivers we've heard previously. Uh, and in fact, he kind of gives Keith a solo at one point, right? Yeah. Keith is great. Is a little unusual? Yeah. Keith, Keith kills it on this song. We're going to talk a lot more about Keith in the second set, I think. This is a great Keith show. Oh, yeah. And a great Keith. And a great recording for Keith. I don't think we mentioned, but Bear recorded this one. This is an Owsley tape. He has the balance just perfect. So where Keith can kind of slip into the background sometimes, he's he's really upfront in this show and gets more so as the show goes on, I think, as he gets more and more confident. And I think Fall of 72 is just might be Keith's peak. I mean, it's very early in the Keith era and he's he's really strong through 73 and 74 too. But it just feels like a sweet spot where he'd been in the band about a year. He is starting to show, I think, some confidence. Well, and Pigpen's just left, as we said exactly. before. So it's like, there's no question that he's the man. He's the guy. Europe 72, I never really think of Keith that much. I mean, he's he's there and he adds a lot of color, but he's not really, he doesn't feel like an active participant as much as he does in, you know, this show and Dick's Picks 11. We talked about Keith being pretty active as well. So, and we'll get into it more in the big jams, but yeah, Keith is really shining, I think, at this point in Dead History. <laughs> it's back tennessee jed we love you you're back in the in the fold here you know i'll say what i said about the cowboy songs if you songs that we might roll our eyes at in different eras they're playing them about as well as you could hope for in fall of 72 and i'll say that about jed i thought this was like a really good jed it's like a little more energetic i think than what you get from later jeds and the jerry solo is awesome in this song so, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to knock Jed. If we have to hear Jed, this is like a really great Jed, I think. Yeah, Jed is Jed. This is, this is a decent one. A lot of people pointed this out when we said on Twitter that we were going to be going to Dead & Company, but I think there's probably very short odds on Dead & Company playing, if not opening, with Tennessee Jed while we're in the audience. <laughs> because would, would they open with Jed? Uh, just because just they know we're there. <laughs> they'll, give, they'll give it to us. Uh, who, who sings Jed with Dead & Company? That's got to be John. John Mayer. I bet it's Mayer. I bet it's Mayer. I don't know that for a fact, but I bet it's Mayer. (laughs) It sounds Um, like a Mayer song, right? Yeah. You know, I think there's a very good chance that at least one of those shows will will finally get like a feel like a stranger. Because you're thinking they're going to troll us. I'm thinking that they're going to hook us up. They're going to, they've heard me cry out plaintively, hoping for a stranger (laughs) and dicks picks. And again, I know that we're going to get one later, but still we've, this is our third season. I don't think we're going to get a stranger to our fourth season. Which is crazy. An incredible opener. So I, I bet they'll open with that one of those shows. Jed, the first night, Stranger, the second night. Oh, man. That's okay. If we get a Stranger, give us a Stranger on Friday and then do Jed on Saturday. I think that, because I'll forgive anything after, if you give me a Stranger <laughs> at the start of the, of the Friday show. So, again, Bob, I know you're listening. Give me a Stranger, man. Hook me up. We've been waiting for a long time on this show. Let's go to Mexicali Blues. More Cowboy Bob. Bob's original cowboy song. Yeah, and you dug up some uh, info about Bob in Mexico. Yeah, more Crawdaddy is that he, uh, I guess Bob has been hanging, he took a vacation to Mexico. I don't know when he had time in 1972 because they were playing 200 shows and traveling to Europe and back. But uh, apparently Bob was like 
drinking some margaritas on the beach at one point and really liked it. He says, once you've been down to Mexico, there's a certain aesthetic you'll never outlive. Well, maybe I'll outlive it, but it's just taken a while. It just keeps cropping up. It's something that I find pleasant and humorous. There's something about Mexico that I find really humorous. <laughs> I really like that particular type of feeling. Well, given that the Den Company, they do uh, playing in the sand every year, right? Down in Mexico, they do one of those Mexican resort oh, yeah. vacation shows. So yeah. I don't think Bob did outlive it. I think he still uh, likes hanging out in Mexico and wearing a big sombrero. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a humorous place. <laughs> it's, Bob down there, he's just laughing at everything. <laughs> just, just just having a ball i wonder like when bob went down there in the 70s like how he did it exactly like did they have all-inclusive yeah. resorts back then like <laughs> could you just hang out by a pool and like just drink little plastic cups of like you know strawberry daiquiris or was he in the shit like going to like the real like like tijuana whorehouses and stuff like that like i just wonder like what his adventures were in mexico in the early 70s I think he went to, I think I read this somewhere else. He went to San Miguel de Allende, which is where a lot of the like sort of American hippie expats lived and still live to this day. Like Cassidy lived, I might have died down there actually. You know, that's not the touristy part of Mexico. That's kind of like the artsy historical part of Mexico. So I don't think he did the the (laughs) all-inclusive. He didn't go to Cabo (laughs) with Sammy Hagar. Oh man, he would now though. (laughs) I I guarantee Bob Weir... Well, because because Sammy Hagar and Bob Weir are pals, I'm oh, pretty sure. sure. Yeah, that would be a killer man. party with Sammy <laughs> Hagar and Bob Weir. Sammy Hagar, whatever you want to say about him. Yeah, he seems like a fun guy. He's like the Guy Fieri of of, of rock. You know, that's like, true. That's that's a good way to put it. You know, yeah, we need a we need a photo of Bob and uh, oh man, Sammy Hagar doing tequila shots. Oh. So you can update your Sammy Hagar and John Travolta doing tequila shots photo that you that's are so like, fond of. Like every every middle aged man. <laughs> dreams of hanging out with sammy hagar and bob weir right in mexico that's like the you know ultimate fantasy if you're a dude between the ages of like 40 and 60 you want to <laughs> go down with those two dudes and i include myself in that all right we go to china writer here at the end of the first disc um i was a little underwhelmed by this yeah i feel kind of bad <laughs> normally it would be a highlight of any dead show but this is just kind of like your stock china writer it's good it's good i mean again i don't you don't want to sound jaded about yeah, seventy-two dead. I mean, it's still good, but yeah, I don't know. It, and I'll say this in general about this show that I think it's all good. I don't have any transcendent moments in this show. I don't have mm-hmm. like the bird song. I think let me take that back. Bird song and playing in the band, I think, are, are are really great. And but you know, like you have those moments listening to the dead where you just totally get in that meditative state where you're totally sucked into what they're doing. And you kind of like lose track of where you're at. And that happens to me when I listen to the dead in the car, if I'm on a road trip. Sometimes mm-hmm. you, you're you so deep into it that you notice, oh, I've driven 10 miles here and I haven't really noticed anything. I don't know if there were like a lot of moments like that on this album for me. And I have to say, to go back, this is like an ongoing narrative in this episode. Dick's Picks 11 versus 23. Dick's Picks 11, China Rider, I think it's pretty great. It had that sound patch in it. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. that. Yeah, There's like an edit. Right. Yeah, from another show, yeah. So maybe we're going to disqualify it for that if we're going to be purists. But <laughs> I think if you compare the shows in that way, the China writers, I think Dix Picks 11 has the edge for sure. Yeah, this one, I mean, it's there's so many great versions to come in 73 and 74 where that middle section just gets really stretched out. Uh, that this one, by comparison, feels a little hurried, feels a little rushed. They kind of fly through it. I guess, you know, we've talked about how this is kind of a transitional era between sort of Europe 72 dead and 
73, 74, Jazzy Dead. Some songs are still in, in that Europe 72 zone, and some songs are already starting to creep into the 73, 74 zone, and China Rider will get there eventually, but at this point is is still pretty straight like the radio version almost of a of a China writer. Like the one from 11 I think is a little more exploratory in the middle. Maybe I need to go mm. back and listen to it again, but because that's really what you listen to this for, your that middle section. That's always yeah. like the the meat of it. And I felt like that one was better than this. I just feel like this was maybe like a slightly off night for this song. Mm. But again, mm-hmm. I don't know. Not to hammer we don't want to hammer this too much. It's still 72 China writer. So right. Still pretty damn good, but better than great. a sharp stick in the eye. Yeah. Exactly. Then we go to a song that has already sort of dived into 73-74 sound, I think, which is playing in the band. Yeah, disc two, killer. Yeah, and it just recently kind of got there, really, because in, even in the Europe versions, it still is kind of under 10 minutes. They play it pretty tight, but this version is, like a lot of the ones we're going to hear, or we have heard in the in the mid-70s, is it's pushing up towards the 20-minute zone. I think this is in our often-talked-about Goldilocks zone with playing in the band, like somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes is what you want. Uh, any longer than that, it seems to drift a little bit, but any shorter than that, it doesn't go as far out. But, I'll go up yeah. to 25 minutes for it. I think I can go that okay. long. But, you know, there's that 43-minute one, which yeah. I'm glad it exists. Yeah. I think there's some awesome moments in it, but it's, like, not my favorite version of that song. Right. What's up with the count-off at the at the beginning of this song? <laughs> yeah. This it's, is one I, I'm going to request a mailbag on. Maybe the guy who told us about the drum patterns in uh, Road Jimmy can, can answer this, but... Yeah, Bob counts it off 3, 5, 7, 8, 9, 10. So it is in 10-4, I know. It was called the main 10 because of its time signature. I don't know why you would count it that way, but maybe that makes sense to people more musically inclined than I am. It just seems like he's either trying to screw them up or it's like, (laughs) I don't want to do the standard Bruce Springsteen, even though Bruce wasn't around at this time. But, you know, like the (laughs) one, two, one. That's like the classic Bruce. I think Bruce is like the master count-off person right it's like he counts off into the microphone like he wants yeah. you to know he can count to four also a big bob pollard move it's the true. bob pollard move is to announce the name of the song and then count it off maybe maybe that's a springsteen influence i never thought of it well i think it's like the ramones did that too i always mm. feel like that was a big thing but bruce always does the one two one two three four so he does like okay. one two twice we should also shout out keith on this song keith yeah. is killing and it he is and like the dick picks 11 version like leading the jam at some yeah. points which is not what you think of when you think of keith Godchow. you no. think of him as being sort of a wallflower particularly in sort of the deeper improvisational zones but yeah i think like i said fall 72 he's coming out of his shell and he's standing up for himself and when you know jerry takes a step back from driving the jam uh here's keith 
to step up. He pointed out his own around 10 minutes in, where it starts to get real fusion-y and jazzy. Yeah, he's, he's quite good at this. first set here so i mean they played birdsong and they played playing in the band in the first set so i mean it, it feels like a long first set too yeah even though there are a lot of songs i mean there's a lot of jams too yeah. it's just uh equal measure jams and song and we're gonna wrap up the first set on the second disc with casey jones yeah this is song we've actually heard a fair amount already on dick's mm-hmm. picks it was on 4 8 11 16 23 here and it's going to be on after this i'm a little surprised that like the Dead didn't really play it that much after 74. I mean, it didn't disappear from their list, but like I was looking this up because I, I definitely feel like after the mid-70s, you don't hear Casey Jones as much, even though this still seems like one of their most famous songs. Like before I listened to The Dead, this mm-hmm. was one of the songs I knew because it was on the right. radio. Yeah, and, exactly. And I looked it up and they've only played it about 300 times. The Grateful Dead proper played it 300, dead, 300 times. And just for a point of comparison, they played Me and My Uncle 625 times. And I guess that's the <laughs> right. most... I, I learned this from a recent episode of the Grateful Dead podcast that that's the most played Dead song, is Me and My right. Uncle. Kind of weird that that would be the song. You wouldn't yeah. necessarily predict that. But yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, like, because I love this song. And this is right. a great version of it. But yeah, they, they kind of let this one go not long after... 72. Yeah, I remember it was a big deal when they brought it back in the 90s, and they only played it four times in the 90s when they brought it back. You would think that 90s Stadium Dead would have played a ton of Casey Jones, just as a crowd pleaser for audience of 60,000, 70,000 in a, in a football stadium. I wonder but, if like uh, Dead & Co. brought it back. They probably have. They, they play pretty much everything, right? I bet Mayer would sing that one, too. <laughs> you know, Because I think Mayer sings most of the Jerry songs. I think Bob sings some of the Jerry songs. Yeah, yeah. You get a couple OTL Jerry songs in there, too. I Jerry mean, ballads. Casey Jones seems like it'd be in Mayor's wheelhouse, though. Pop blues feel to it. I can hear him growling. Hi, yeah. Uncle Kane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, I mean, I'm honestly, I hope they play that song. I want to hear a John Mayer purr on, on Hi, Uncle you're just, Kane. I, you're just going to sit there and laugh at me every time John Mayer opens his mouth. The whole, you're, the whole not weekend. even you. Will, you won't be cynical. We're, it's going to be so pure, man. I mean, come on. Yeah. After this break, and you get to, I mean, I, I, I think I'm seeing some shows before that, but that's going to be, that's going to be so cool, man. I'm, I'm, I yeah. can't wait for Wrigley. Um, so now we start the second set in the middle of the second disc. You have Truckin'. Is Truckin' underrated now? Among deadheads, yeah, I, I feel like this is a song that people sort of knee-jerk dislike because they feel like it's overplayed. 
something to do. It's another one like Casey Jones, one of the few songs. Grateful Dead songs you'll hear on the radio. I just heard on the radio the other day, actually, which was unusual. And, you know, it's on Skeletons from the Closet, so it's considered like a Greatest Hits fan song. I think maybe because the What a Long Strange Trip It's Been line has been so overused, that kind of hurts Truckin's reputation. That's true. Um, Even though Dead & Company leaned right into it with their tour announcement (laughs) i noticed for this year well like normal like normal people don't care like hardcore fans get annoyed by that but like if you're just like a casual fan you think it's cool yeah yeah it's a cool phrase but yeah it's like you know it's kind of a dead cliche at this point but yeah you're right because you you called out the 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 dead song bracket that was recently on twitter weekend it got got knocked out pretty early right yeah knocked out by eyes actually which, that's a terrible pairing for Truckin, because <laughs> yeah. I would have voted for Eyes, too. But, like, Truckin yeah. should be a higher seed. Because Eyes, was that, like, a number one seed? If it wasn't, it should be, like, a second or third seed. I mean, I mean that's, right. my, that's my favorite dead song, as I've said many times on this show. So, Eyes would win out for me. But, I know Truckin, good musically, has great Robert Hunter lyrics, you know? Like, mm-hmm. great storytelling lyrics. And at this time, it became kind of a jam vehicle. I mean, they would play it for like 12 minutes or so. I think yeah. this version's about a dozen minutes. Yeah. It's starting to stretch out. There's that big long one on Europe 72, yeah. of course. This one's a little bit weird for the era because it would uh, segue a lot into the other one. Or uh, I think there's some truck and he's gone from this time period, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but this this one being used as a set opener and sort of a self-contained truck and is a little bit unusual, but I think it it sets a good tone for the set. Like I, on paper, I think this second set set list is like perfect. <laughs> it is a perfect Grateful Dead set, uh, and I think the playing on it is excellent as well. But there's just not there's not a dud in this entire second set for me. Yeah, kicking it off here with Truckin' is 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 a, is a nice tone setter. My dream set would in, would probably lean more towards seventy three seventy four material with like an Eyes of the World in there and maybe like a Weather Report Suite or something like a the jazzier dead. But <laughs> this is a yeah, you're right. Like in terms of the material, it's hard to go wrong with what we're going to get from like the next bunch of songs. We have Loser next. We've heard Loser before uh so far on Dick's Picks albums, but they're all from 76 and 77. And I I complained about the Dick's Picks 10 version. I thought, like, the drummers screwed that song up a little bit. I mean, I love the Barton Hall version from 77. Right. I think that's, like, one of my favorite versions of Loser. So I think they could kill it in that time. But this is a great Loser. This is a great era for, for this song, I think. I mean, Loser is one of my favorite Grateful Dead songs. And I, for some reason, none of the ones we've gotten so far in that 76, 77 era have really scratched the itch for me on what I like about Loser. This one definitely does, though. I mean, it's got just a really nice mix of sort of menace in Jerry's solos and the sorrow in Jerry's singing. And I think it is a song that probably works better with one drummer dead. We haven't pushed too hard on this so far in this episode, surprisingly, but another great thing about September 72 is that it's, you know, Billy in 72 is just just top of his game. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we really hit that hard in the Dick's Picks 11 episode, so maybe yeah. we're laying off. Maybe we're, like, understating it now. But mm-hmm. yeah, he is just a monster. It's coming, so especially coming off that 68 show. I mean, it's one thing to come from the 85 show to this, where 85 is just, you know, prime to Drummer Dead and all of its flawed glory, <laughs> I would say. Uh, but then we also had the 68 show where you had the two Drummer Dead just as like a steamroller yeah, machine. Of, of limbs <laughs> yeah. playing so hard and so fast and just, you know, no breaks at all. Four years after that, you have Billy 
doing just an astonishingly nuanced drum performance uh, with so much swing. Yeah. So much like jazz feel to it, but also, you know, rocking hard when he needs to just in, you know, beautiful melodic dialogue with the band too, uh, during these big long jam passages we're about to get to. And then a song like Loser, I feel like they just nail it because Billy is, is right on top of it. Yeah, he sounds great. And like Jerry's tone too in this show is like, it's just dirtier than usual. And I mean that in, mm. in the best possible way. He's got like a really yeah. gritty tone and like stinging sound almost sometimes. Gravelly and stingy. And I love his solo on this song. I think he just sounds so badass. This could be a go-to loser for me uh, really when, good. I, when I need when I need need that fix. From there, we go to Jack Straw. I don't have a ton to say about this Jack Straw. I think it's really good. I don't know. Do you have any insights into this Jack Straw? Well, again, it's just like there's these like loser too. There's a bunch of songs that they just played night in and night out through Europe. I think you know continued working on when they got back to the United States, uh, and they're just finely tuned engines at this point they just sound so good and they're not like weird in any way i guess so it's it's a little like tough to talk about <laughs> on a podcast that is exhaustively going through all these songs again and again but it's like you could pull this out you know europe 72 famously had a lot of overdubs you know vocally in particular but i mean this jack straw sounds totally studio ready to me too it's like the casey jones and loser and like some other songs in the first set they are just so good at playing this material right now that you almost take it for granted that because there's a lot of other jack straws that are on the border of catastrophe <laughs> and this one is is just killing it and i kind of like those ramshackle jack straws because mm-hmm. i think it fits the themes of the song and this is another song that i feel like i love the 70s versions but like Bob, as an older man singing the song, I think is always pretty great. More, It kind of brings out like the old outlaw quality to it. From there, we go to the greatest Grateful Dead song of all time, <laughs> Mississippi Half Step. And this is an early half step, and you can tell. It, it's quick. It's, it's a little rougher and more upbeat, and I think those qualities really help this song, actually. Yeah. This is another song that can get a little draggy, I think, when you get into later years with the dead. Um, but this one has like a real feistiness to it that I like a lot. And again, the Jerry Garcia guitar solo, just sick, just great. Sounds kind of dirty and, and great. I'll say great again. I've said great like three times, (laughs) uh, that description, but yeah, this was like a really good half step. I thought, yeah, it's only two months old at this point. It debuted in July. According to the setlist sites, it's only the 10th time they played it. So you can hear that it's not totally finalized because they do the Rio Grandio part twice, both before and after the solo uh, at the end of the song. But it's one of the few songs that they've started to work Donna into, right? So I think before this, we've only heard Donna doing her playing in the band controversial contributions. I didn't mind the Donna scream on this one. I thought she did quite good. And I love you know, the Donna scream. In this era where they're only bringing her out for a couple songs, she's just making the most of her stage appearance, right? Well, and she's going to she's gonna really become a major factor when we move into our third disc. There's some beautiful mm. Donna vocal performances exactly. coming up. One of her best. Yeah. So yeah, so the half step is like an early peek at that too. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Like it being sort of, you know, where Jack Straw was super polished, this is still ramshackle makes it feel a little more uh rootsy it has kind of a nice nice edge to it yeah i really like this one i mean i feel like for the mississippi half step heads out there it seems like 77 was a year that like people thought that song really shined we had that dicks picks 15 version from english town Mm -hmm. which is well regarded um but anyway i like this early half step 
From there we go to Me and My Uncle, another cowboy song, the last song on the second disc. And I said before, like, this is the most performed dead song ever, apparently. Right. Which is kind of weird. I wonder why yeah. that is. I guess just because Bob never let it go <laughs> <laughs> through through all uh, 30 years of dead performances. Yeah, funny that the song that they most performed was not even written by them, too. Written by John Phillips. Yeah. A horrible man, by the way. John Phillips. <laughs> a true monster. I don't know if you yeah. want to get into like his terrible backstory but yeah it's sad to think that the dead were lining his pockets with royalty money because he's truly a despicable human being but he wrote some great songs for and and he doesn't remember writing me and my uncle too i always wonder if that like the story will ever truly come out and it turns out he didn't write it yeah he wrote it with somebody else or something like that but like it's a little bit like that the bob dylan story about how he wrote love is a four-letter word and Joan Baez recorded it, and they heard it on the radio, and he forgot that he had written it. He was yeah. like, oh, that's a good song. <laughs> or like that song, Wagon uh, Wheel, you know, that uh, yeah, you know, that was a big hit. I think that was like a throwaway, and then now it's like a huge hit. It's just like, yeah, you're Bob right. Dylan. Your table scraps become hits for other people. Right, exactly. But this is a really good Me and My Uncle, I think. Like, you know, a song that it's easy to tune out for, but uh, we talked about how Big River didn't really fly like it has on some other volumes. This one has all that Big River energy that was missing from the first set, where Jerry is just red hot the entire song, I think. So yeah. I really yeah. like this one. Yeah, again, I mean, it's not like a broken record, but like this is a show where songs that you might be tempted to skip when they're played in a different era. It's like a great era to hear a lot of these songs because they really kill it. You know, this is kind of a tangent, but like one thing I was thinking about was, you know, because Me and My Uncle is another Europe 72 song. And you look up Europe, Europe 72 and all those songs, for the most part, became standards. But one song that didn't, and for obvious reasons, is Mr. Charlie, which is a song I've always really liked. And of course, that didn't end up getting played that much because that was a Pigpen song. And it was introduced fairly late into his tenure in the band. So they only played it about 40 times. It's like really like the only song on Europe 72 that like hasn't become like a war horse for the Grateful Dead. But I've always liked Mr. Charlie. I don't know if there's other Mr. Charlie heads out there. <laughs> it's like because it's like a, it's a pig pen and Robert Hunter co-write. Yeah, a weird one. Yeah, and it's like cool lyrics and it's like a good avenue for like pig pen just to be like a tough guy a good yeah, tough exactly. guy song he's definitely writing to pig pen's persona and i don't know if the dead it'd be i mean i was like it'd be a cool tribute to pig pen to dig up mr charlie every now and then i don't know if anyone if like bob or jerry could pull that song off though maybe you need pig <laughs> yeah. pen to uh to really make that song work but i don't know one of the like sad things about pig pen's rapid decline is that right around this time when he Jumped off the road. The idea was that he was going to stay back and make a studio album. And I assume Mr. Charlie was like one of the songs that would have made it onto that record, right? Like if he was making a a solo record, he had supposedly written a bunch of songs in the last, you know, year or so of his life. I imagine they would have gone into the studio like Ace, where it's a Bob Weir solo record, but it's the Grateful Dead playing on it, of course. That would have been a nice document to have, right? Like a nice... I'm sure that would be a big cult favorite record if that had actually come out. Yeah, I mean, if there were more songs like Mr. Charlie, which it just has like a good swinging, like Rolling Stones vibe to me. I I really like. Mm, Yeah, he could have made just like a real sleazy blues record. Oh, yeah, that would have been killer. the best time for sleazy blues rock. Yeah, that would have been good. That would have been a good vibe. Because I I can be mixed on Pigpen a little bit, but like that for him, I love. And the dead lost that when he passed away you know that right i mean bob had his own 
brand of blues, but it's more... It's like a bar band blues, or turns into that it's when you get into the 80s. It's more bad, is what you're trying to say? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's a little more lumbering. I feel like with Pigpen, it had like... It, it just sounds like music you'd hear in a Hell's Angels bar. Yeah. You know, like tough right. guy exactly. music, which is pretty cool. Big disc here. Now we're really getting into it. Yep. He's gone kicking it off. You know, this I think is kind of part and parcel of the other one that follows too. I think the He's Gone is just a really nice sort of gentle on-ramp to the very, very deep jam we're about to get into. Yeah. It's a He's Gone that, so on Europe 72, He's Gone is almost like frisky. (laughs) It's like very up-tempo and it's finally, and it's starting to already slow down a little bit by the fall and again another great billy song like billy just swinging the band through the whole song and has a really nice gentle jam to it that i thought i don't know if you heard this too sounded a little bit mountain jammy yeah you know i did it hadn't occurred to me until you said that and now mm -hmm. i totally hear it and yeah just to back up your billy praise this seems like a hard song to play because Mm -hmm. keeping something interesting that's slow yeah. And, you know, and, and making it swing, but not rushing it. I mean, that just seems like a really fine needle to thread. And yeah, he kills it because he's Bill Kreitzman in 1972. He can do anything. Yeah, my favorite part of this is definitely like that languid jam at the end where it gets pretty spacey. It starts to drift a little bit and you feel like it could go off on its own. and It doesn't, but it's still mm-hmm. pretty cool. Like, I, I love that part of this. He's gone. Yeah, I think you kind of I mean, they so they they roll it into the other one. Yes. But I do feel like it's a little bit sort of hybrid he's gone the other one for like the next 15 minutes or so. Oh, yeah. Because even though the other one, the track kicks off with, you know, the trademark Phil bass roll launching you into the other one, though it's a little bit like quieter than normal because it's coming out of this very pretty he's gone jam. And then they, you know, sort of amp up the intensity in in the other one. They they steer right into a Billy drum solo they kind of kick off the other one again (laughs) a second time uh but then they just go off into this like open jamming for a good solid 10 minutes before they return to the other one again and finally sing the lyrics like 20 minutes into the song and so that is sort of like one of these quantum zones i think that first 20 minutes where it's a little bit he's gone is still sort of there's some traces of it still around uh the other one is clearly starting there's just like you know a third piece that is completely open improvisation but you know one of those thrilling sort of dead zones where you're not really sure what song you're in it's just just pure music and it's going to be pure music for nearly 40 minutes the longest jam in our 36 from the vault history and the longest jam i checked uh, throughout the entire dicks picks i mean like what's second to this do you i think know? might be that volume 36 dark star yeah i was gonna say that i mean that i think that's like 36 minutes yeah that dark star so not that much shorter but yeah this is the most epic jam in dicks picks history here and <laughs> 
You and I disagree on this, I think. We've already touched on this. The compliment I would give of this jam is that it, it goes on for a long time, and it never feels boring or without direction or purpose. Like, it has a thread to it that lasts the entire time, and you really broke it down in our outline. I don't know how deep you want to get into analyzing this progression, <laughs> but there are distinct sections to it that lead logically into the next, even though they are improvising and making things up as they go along. I think Keith in particular is great. I think my favorite part of the song is that almost like little like tango part around, I think 30 minute mark mm-hmm. yeah. where it's like, it's like Billy and, and Keith basically playing. And Phil. And so it's like a little piano too. trio. Yeah, yeah. It's like so cool. Like to, to hear those three guys without the guitar players, I think is, is really awesome. But if we're going to compare it to say the dark star that we heard in Dick's picks 11, I just, I was never transported I felt like it was always really good, but it never got into like the great region for me, but it did for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sort of, you know, the head versus the heart <laughs> in terms of <laughs> responding to these big, epic Grateful Dead jams. Like, I think there's definitely Grateful Dead jams that are more emotionally uh, resonant, I guess. That have payoffs, like, and, and yeah. peaks. Yeah. Exactly, a narrative. Whereas this one, I love in a more academic sense because it has all these different sections to it that aren't, to my ears at least, and I haven't listened to every the other one in Fall 72. They typically were not this long. They were closer to 20 minutes generally. So this one really is a anomaly as far as how deep they take it and how long they go with it. But it's not like they're going in and out of Spanish Jam or Feeling Groovy or some of these preconceived themes that they would dip in and out of. Uh, It's like the embodiment of that Bob quote I read earlier, where it is just them, you know, in conversation, suggesting ideas. If, If an idea clicks with two or three members, the whole band follows it like a flock of birds and and finds, you know, every piece of inspiration they can out of that theme and then somebody else is right there with another idea and you hear them sort of dropping out and forming little mini trios or quartets at different times different people are stepping up and taking the lead at different times to me it's just the optimal version of rock improvisation like this is this is what it should be and this is what it so excites me about jam bands in general when they do it really well is is this type of jam that is just producing new music spontaneously. Right. And that's just so exciting to hear, whether you're in the crowd or whether you're hearing it, you know, 50 years later, just hearing this, you know, magic coming up out of nowhere instead of like a pre-rehearsed or planned out sort of performance.
yeah, I just love it. I did like a whole play-by-play because I love jams like this that have almost, you know, like symphonic movements in a way, just naturally arising as they're playing. So you get sort of the other one, you get sort of a jazzy section, you get a real deep spacey section that sounds a little bit like a like the plane and the band jams they were starting to play you get that piano trio section you get a really cool theme already deep into like the 35th minute of the song <laughs> before they get back to the second verse it's not the type of jam where you uh listen to it and you're like wow i can't believe that was 40 minutes that just flew by it doesn't fly by it feels like a 40 minute jam but that's not a knock on it it just feels like this really heavy meal where you're getting several courses of of brilliant Grateful Dead music that they just, you know, wouldn't play on another night in, in exactly the same way. I'm, I'm going to take it over the Dix Picks 11 Dark Star, and I think that's what puts this volume ahead of Dix Picks 11 for me, is that I just like the feature jam better. Yeah, and I, in listening to you talk, I feel like maybe a good way to describe this would be that this seems like the kind of jam that appeals to a person who's heard like a lot of jams in the past. Like you've heard a lot, a lot of jam band music. You've heard a lot of like Grateful Dead or Fish or whatever it is. And you're well-versed in the tricks or the maneuvers that bands of this ilk go into when they're trying to get an audience response, when they're trying to get like a peak or some sort of emotional crescendo. And there's almost a level of admiration of how they don't really go there at all in this right. piece. And it's almost like deconstructing the idea of like what a jam like this should be. And it's like, no, we're not going to do the obvious crowd pleasing things. We're going to go deep and have long stretches of time, like where we are playing pretty quiet. And it's almost like an like an ambient type feel to it at times, it, where it is, like you said, a little more intellectual maybe. And I totally appreciate it on that level. But yeah, I just feel like maybe there's the part of me that does respond to the emotional manipulation of the Grateful Dead, where I like those surges, and I like to have my mind blown. And I feel like that Dark Star from 11, and also, I mean, the Dark Star from 36 is incredible. So I'll be be excited to get to that, you know, in, I guess, 13 episodes. So yeah, you know, it's great for what it is. I, I love it, but I still give the edge to 11. I think we had a good Lincoln Douglas debate about this, though. I think we've given both sides. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love, too, that this, you know, so 73, 74, I think it this type of jam becomes more common, that you're getting these really deep explorations. But I do love that, you know, for most of the rest of the show, it's very songy and almost radio-friendly. <laughs> now they play some of these Europe 72 songs, and then they just drop this, like, basically album-length piece of music on people of improvised music i mean you're really getting two extreme sides of the dead here in one show which is which is nice
because it is jammy, but it's also very songy too. Mm-hmm. And because we go from there into "Sing Me Back Home," yeah, which is a great transition, right? And of course, this is a Merle Haggard song. And the Dead have played other Merle Haggard songs, most famously "Mama Tried." That that's definitely the one they beat the most into the ground. They've dabbled in "Okie from Muskogee," which was I feel like a song that people performed ironically in the early 70s if you were like a rock band certainly a band like the grateful dead there was like some tongue-in-cheek with that i've never like quite understood the dynamic <laughs> with merle haggard and hippies like well, like Hager, i mean i think it's complicated with those i think like for a lot of those country people like i don't think merle haggard i mean i think that song is ironic itself i don't think yeah, he's yeah. actually anti-hippie necessarily but there is that combination of like valorizing the individual which i think is a lot of a common thing with a lot of country people and there's some social consciousness too like Johnny Cash had social consciousness parts. I think more than Merle Haggard did. Like my feeling on Haggard is that he was like a, a conservative Democrat, probably. Mm-hmm. Like I like don't a think glass. Yeah, I don't yeah. think he was. I don't think he was ever like right wing. I could be. I don't know a ton about Merle Haggard's like politi- yeah. like politics, but I think that song uh, is tongue in cheek. But I don't think the people who like that song, yeah, considered it. To be satire. It's fraud. Yeah, <laughs> I think it, people liked it at face value, right. uh, which is what maybe unfairly tarred him. So on the Phil Oaks Gunfight at Carnegie Hall album, he introduces Okie from Muskogee by talking about how like Merle Haggard is one of the great conservative singer-songwriters. Uh, he has a whole spiel about how finally the right has you know musicians that are making music. It's not just... And he's also kind of needling his audience. Uh, right. in that show that's i don't know if that came up in the dylan show but that is like a great counterpoint to the the dylan manchester performance another one where the crowd is just like incensed at the person performing uh but he brings up that like he like leans right into this culture war of merle haggard writing a song about how we don't smoke marijuana in muskogee his story is sadder though because you feel like there's probably some mental illness or or personal problems you know with him at that time that, with phil oaks that oh it's, yeah, a, it's a way sadder like, version of that yeah record. exactly yeah. I feel like Dylan, there's a little more agency maybe in what he's doing. Yeah. That he's not just self-destructive. Like whereas with right. Oaks, you feel like, okay, is he just like going off the rails? And he right. was yeah. in a lot of ways. You know, so the dead covering it is like, I feel like could maybe be a little surprising in this same era, but maybe not. Maybe I'm misinterpreting how Merle Haggard was. I mean, I think they genuinely perceived. love Merle Haggard. I think they probably yeah. would have assumed that he was on their side or or maybe they just didn't care. Just the songs, man. Yeah, it's just the songs. The Dead weren't super political, or really at all political in a lot of ways. But mm. anyway, Save Me Back Home, to get back to that song, because there's really no political subtext. Yeah, this is just a beautiful <laughs> song. And, and Jerry uh, we, kills it. Jerry kills it, and Donna kills it. Donna sounds yeah. great on this song. This is a song they didn't play a whole lot. It, this version makes me wish they had played it more. I mean, I guess they played yeah. a lot in this era. But like really after 72, did they play this all that much? I mean, I feel like it's really like early 70s dead that yeah. you hear this song. A couple times in 73, it looks like, but only 71 to 73. And okay. Yeah. Another one that was played at Veneta, and I think that's probably the most famous version. But I mean, you talked about, you know, the other one maybe not having that emotional power that you want from a big jam. Well, Sing Me Back Home is here to, oh, to yeah. provide that, I think. And it's such a perfect placement. You could easily see them going into Morning Dew or one of their other sort of tearjerkers right here, but I think it's even better to go into Sing Me Back Home here because it's just, you know, it's a it's a simple song structurally, but incredibly moving in how they perform it and how Jerry sings it with Donna is a really beautiful duet. Donna has a lot of room to show off her chops too. She's got some, you know, ad-libbing that sounds really nice and kind of calls back to her, you know, previous life as a studio singer for Elvis and other people. 
Yeah, it's great. And it it's it's funny to compare like how Jerry sings this to how Bob does, like Mama Tried or other country material, because you always kind of feel like Bob's a little tongue in cheek singing these country songs or you know kind of at at least one level of ironic remove from all these like outlaw cowboy stories whereas jerry is just like he is he's on death row singing sing me back home like he is putting himself right in there it's a different kind of song too i mean it definitely fits with jerry's personality of like the big Mm -hmm. soulful ballad you know that comes out of the jam this is in the wharf rat spot the stella blue spot the morning dew Mm -hmm. spot you know like where we've jammed out for a while and now we're gonna like make you cry by having Jerry to get to pl- church, yeah, yeah, just just Jerry singing his ass off on like a yeah. a soulful ballad, and it works every time. It's like, God damn it, Jerry, you got me again, just weeping. <laughs> Send me back home, and then we go into a standard kind of closing fare. We go with Sugar Magnolia and Uncle John's band. Yeah, I feel like we can talk about these as a package. Yeah, the only thing that's weird is that they don't end with Sugar Magnolia. Just feels like that that would be where the set ends <laughs> traditionally and it almost it feels like uncle john's band is the encore here though as we said saturday night was the encore i mean uncle john's uh, band i like more i mean the sugar magnolia yeah. is good i mean again we never have anything to say about sugar magnolia because it's <laughs> exactly. always good but it's like oh, what are you gonna say about sugar magnolia but right uncle john's band though like I, I i quite liked this version yeah it is very good i think it's funny too they've got donna to add some actual harmonies to songs, and yet they still have Phil singing the high harmonies on <laughs> Uncle John's Band. Uh, but, I mean, it's Uncle John's Band, always a song that is kind of tough to replicate uh, the studio version of, but this is a, it's a good one. And it's, ni- yeah, nice little bonus dead after the big Sugar Magnolia crowd pleaser, which ordinarily would end a set. And then, you know, one more Saturday night, not on here, I guess we're going to be forced to take a bathroom break during that. We're, we're, we're ducking out <laughs> during one more Saturday night. Get into our car in the Baltimore Civic Center parking lot. Yep, and start our drive to the other side of the country for Dick's Picks 24. That's right. On their home turf, San Francisco, and one of my favorite venue names of all time, the Cow Palace. Yes, <laughs> totally. Cow Palace, baby. And uh, the introduction of the Wall of Sound. The very first real, authentic Wall of Sound show. And if I remember correctly, there's like a famous technical glitch in this show. And I don't know if it's the first song or the or somewhere. In the, there's like a, I think there's a song like where Bob Weir's vocals aren't audible. Oh, okay. And they have to plug in something in the middle of the song, <laughs> and then you can hear them. Yep, typical Wall of Sound stuff. Yeah. I don't think the Wall of Sound ever went a show without a technical glitch. Maybe we should have that guy on who built the mini Wall of Sound in his basement. Did you oh, see that man. story? Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that guy. Look. We're going to reach out to that guy and get him to, to call in and talk about his model wall of sound. He might be a listener. He might be out there. He might be yeah, excited that there, we're talking to him. If you're out there. Send us a mailbag. Yeah. We'll get you on uh, Zoom here. Have you talk. But yeah, man. Heart of 7374, which we've talked about loving that era. A lot of people love that era. It's going to be great. Dick's Picks 24, baby. We're two-thirds of the way through. Oh, at man. the two-thirds mark next week. So uh, yeah, it's... We're on the on the home stretch almost. Just gathering steam, man. Full steam ahead. Well, thank you all for listening. This has been 36 from the Vault. I'm Steve, and that's Rob over there. We'll talk to you next up about Dick's Picks 24. See we'll ya. See ya at the Cow Palace. <laughs> 36 from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman 
All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe to Grind podcast. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.